Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Gonorrhea! Garrison, take over. I, I asked for some grunting. That was like a word. What? But okay. What? It was gonorrhea. Bastards That's opening. That's how you open a show. I know. We, lots of the Academic openings have become bastards openings now. Just I only have does one kind not, of opening. Yeah, Robert doesn't have no. more than one type of opening. No, there, there's two. There's there's grunting and then yelling something weird. That is. Look, that's basically the same. Learning um, how to do your job is cuck shit. Uh-huh. Also, t- to be honest, <laughs> most of the time doesn't know which podcast he's doing. They're all the yeah, same what, thing. What is this? Are we doing? Is this the Daily Zeitgeist? Is that? Is, am I Jack O'Brien? <laughs> no, Who are we? This is this is <laughs> it. Could ha- you is Miles. This, this is it. Could happen here. Which we're talking about shit. Miles. <laughs> Me. So we're talking Me. today about the different things that are uh, it. Um, the here being the states this time. Um, but we're talking about basically over the course of the past few months, we have covered a few different topics on the show. 
um, some of which have already kind of had some results or have had updates to what we've already covered. Cool. So we're I'm gonna I'm gonna go through a list of like a three different things that we've covered and talk about kind of the updates in these stories. Um, you know, most of what we've covered around these topics have been like a mix of original reporting and interviews. So now there's been further further work done on this, and I just want to kind of update people if you know they're not as terminally online as us. Maybe they have not heard that there's been changes to these stories, and I wanted to kind of put together a nice little concise thing talking about updates to all the things we've covered. Um, so the first thing that we're going to be uh, talking a bit about is the uh, cop city in Atlanta and the Defend the Atlanta Forest uh, Coalition. So I think like a day after our episode dropped on that um, uh, Atlanta City Council voted uh, 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 10 to 4 in Jesus. favor of getting the militarized police training facility uh, greenlit, um, nicknamed Cop City. There was, there was 17 hours of public testimony where 70% of the callers spoke out against the facility. Yeah, um, but, I mean, that, we had that happen in Portland. Over, it doesn't, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it never matters. It doesn't no. matter what the vast majority of especially when there's Especially when there's money yeah. involved. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah do, do, not, do not ever be deceived into thinking that uh, you live in a democracy and that what you actually want matters no. in any way, shape, or form. This is just not, this is empirically not true. Like like 65% of Texans, period, support uh, vaccine mandates in some instances, but the governor just made it illegal to do them ever. Um, yeah. Like, it's, it, it's, it's that way across the board, across the nation. Um, people ask sometimes, because like, you know, when you get into anarchist discussions of politics, there's a lot of criticism of democracy. I don't. I think democracy is a lovely idea. I would like to try it sometime. It would be um, nice to give it a go. <laughs> it would be nice to experience. <laughs> so yeah, uh, this city council voted to lease the 350 acres of city-owned forest land to the Atlanta Police Foundation. Um, at least 85 acres of which is going to be slated to become the police training facility. Um, the facility is going to cost around 90 million dollars. Jesus um, Christ! I could train cops much cheaper than that. Although training is the wrong word. Yeah, that is the wrong word for yeah. that. Um, so yeah, ninety million dollars. It's going to include it's going to include a state of the art explosives testing facility, uh, firing ranges, emergency vehicle operations course, a classroom space, um, and an emergency and an, and well, at an least emergency there's a classroom helicopter space. So they'll probably learn to read, right? Uh, I'm sure it's for teaching people to do bad things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a, an emergency helicopter pad and an entire like mock town. Too, it is you know. good that they have the emergency helicopter pad because cops shoot each other with live ammunition all the time in those that does, training that houses. Does happen. It happens constantly. Yeah, that does happen a lot. So yeah, the the, the main backer for this project um, is the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is a political advocacy group that you know has a lot of uh, funding from corporations, and they try to you know sway the political um, oh, no way. power of the city into giving more power to the police. Oh no way. Um, uh huh. So the, the 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 interesting thing about this though is like the vote was supposed to happen in August, um, but it was rescheduled for early September after there was a lot of public backlash around this proposal. Um, then the the vote uh, that was supposed to happen on like the thirteenth got pushed back a whole day because there was too many callers saying that they didn't want the facility. So the vote got pushed back a day in September, but it, it they still voted for it. Yeah. So thirty million dollars uh, is going to be footed by taxpayers. And the other sixty million is going to get uh, paid for by the uh, police foundation, which has a lot of different like corporate donors. So that's that's this, that's that. Um, and, and of course, it's on you know on this forest land, which is like some of the you know biggest forest land in any major American city. So you know they're tearing down all this forest to build this concrete city to train cops uh -huh. in. So, yeah, we, we should also we should also mention that 
at, at the end of her interview with some of the people resisting this, they, they basically said, like, if the vote goes through, resistance is going to continue. So resistance yeah, will continue. There's like, probably going to be efforts to, like, actually try to physically prevent the construction of this. But the next thing we're going to be talking about is stop line three, um, which means there was also, you know, physical efforts to prevent that. But the type of efforts that people usually do in, you know, modern green activism usually are a lot more performative or they're specifically to pressure to, to create scenes that will try to convince politicians to veto the process. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's different from the 90s when it was easier to like actually physically stop the prevention of things. Now, a lot of the people who, you know, are trying to do this, it is, they're not convinced that, you know, doing a lockbox is going to actually physically prevent it. What it's going to do is create media coverage that, tr- that is going to hopefully convince politicians to be like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. And that's a hard bargain, right? That's not, there's no saying that that's actually going to do the thing. You know, if, in, the, in the case of Stop Line 3, it, it, that did not stop Line 3. Um, I, th- there was a really good... Uh, um, critique of the Stop Line 3 protests posted in uh, It's Going Down by an indigenous anarchist who lives on that land who was, like, younger. Um, and they're, you know, watching all of these, you know, older indigenous anarchists, you know, keep on getting arrested and brutalized. And like, but we're not actually doing anything. And the methods that we're doing, the methods that we're trying to, like, you know, gain public support, this isn't working in this specific context. Maybe we should reevaluate what we're actually doing. I know It's Going Down faced a bit of backlash for posting that critique, but I think that I think the critique's actually worth reading. Any, any other thoughts on the Atlanta thing before I move on to the Stop Line 3 stuff? Um, no, no, other than to note that I think the best brisket I've ever had came from Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll probably, vi- I'll probably be visiting Atlanta in the near future. I may be there with you, <laughs> um, in which case I'll get some more motherfucking brisket. Yeah. Uh, it was actually a fun story. We were road tripping through town, me and, and another friend in another car, and we were talking over radios, and a trucker got on like the channel we were on because we were talking about where to get barbecue and he told us where to go. Um, it was neat. It was like an actual nice like like moment of CB radio connection. Like this guy yeah. was just scanning the waves and found us and was like, oh, I can tell you where to go. Anyway, continue, Garrison. That was completely unrelated to stopping line three. So the next thing is uh, earlier, I think in uh, September, maybe August, I forget. It's been a while. Uh, we, I, we, we posted two episodes about me visiting the stop line three protests and the Earth First yeah. camp. And a lot of stuff has happened since then. Um, so, you know, the the main, you know, thing is that the pipeline has been finished now um, and is basically getting, is ready to be uh, operated or it probably already has some operation. It's unclear how much is being used right now, but it is done construction. It, it doubles the capacity uh, of the original pipeline. It's going to be doing like a 760,000 barrels of oil a day. So in the, it carves out land through uh, through wetlands where people grow wild rice and do hunting. Um, so it, it, overall, the past few months, police have arrested over 900 people, and it's uh, there's been a, a lot of like felony charges specifically for locking down, which is pretty new because they're using like, felony theft charges for people just locking down to equipment. Yeah, that is an unfortunate escalation. Yeah. Um. So by the time we posted our Softline three episodes, we kind of already figured this was going to be the result. Th- th- that's kind of how we ended the episode, saying. There's been all this resistance, but probably it's going to get built. And, you know, there's other things that we can learn from this movement going on into the future. Um, But the new developments that have happened, um, I I, I did mention in the episodes how much Enbridge was directly paying cops. That was something we already knew that was happening. Uh, But there was an article by The Guardian 
that really gave a lot of new information around how much police involvement there is with like with Enbridge. Like they are actually coordinating a lot. So overall, uh, Enbridge has reimbursed U.S. police uh, almost two and a half million dollars for arresting and surveying protesters. Um, also paying for like food, lodging, uh, gas. So like it's, it's they're not not just not not just paying wages. They're paying like for extra stuff as well. So at least at least two and a half million dollars has been paid from the Canadian oil company. Um, you know, include and that includes officer officer training, uh, police patrol routes, surveillance, all this kind of stuff. Um, the one one interesting thing that was noted in the article is that uh, the company at Enbridge meets daily with police officers to discuss intelligence gathering and patrols. Um, and when Ed, and when Enbridge wants protesters removed, it directly calls or sends letters to police. So. They they actually like coordinate when to actually get police involved during protests, and they have at least daily information meetings. The one other interesting thing, besides just directly paying them for food, for you know training equipment, and the coordination between Enbridge and people being on the ground, is um, how much that the Enbridge paid for uh, like proactive safety patrols and specific like specific officer surveillance following alleged activists like home. So they would like trail specific cars for a long time and try to like do like in-person surveillance on specific people they thought were activists. And all of this time was paid for by Enbridge and was being coordinated with Enbridge. So it's not just, you know, paying for training. It's not just for paying for equipment. It's specific surveillance of certain people. And that is, I don't know, that's something that we weren't, we did not really know the depths of that for sure, but uh, it's pretty, it's pretty messed up. I know we we suspected some of this coordination before, like when we talked about police showing up to the Stop Line 3 camp and blocking off access to the road. Uh, this was at the same day that drilling under the river was just being finished. And we so we suspected like, yeah, there's like Enbridge is obviously talking with police to prevent people from leaving so that they can they can finish up this specific drilling project. That was that was pretty obvious to us at the scene. Um and now we have, you know, extra confirmation that, yeah, they do, like, meet daily to coordinate these types of things. Um, so it's good to have that extra confirmation of the stuff we already, like, suspected and stuff we already kind of, like, put together through experience. But now we have, like, you know, court documents and, like, records showing the extent of the coordination. All right. Well, we'll talk about terrorism. But you know who else is a terrorist? Oh, boy. The products and services that support this podcast oh, are... Oh, boy. All right. In a good way, you uh-huh. know? Uh-huh. Like, um, you know. Like, uh, like, uh, like, like kind of. Okay, all right. Sometime. Well, uh, it's, it's complicated. All right. What, do ads. Just run ads. Stop. <laughs> oh, uh, Sophie, it'll probably be funnier if you bleep out the name of the terrorist organization. <laughs> this, this is how we, this is how we pick up from the ad break is yeah. you saying that. <laughs> so, um, Garrison, we got some, uh, some critiques that came in to the old news line, by which I mean people DM'd me on Reddit. Um, which I on Reddit? On Discord. Wow. Yeah, I never respond. Um, I, I almost never respond. It's nothing against people. I just don't like being communicated with. Yeah. Um, no but, shit. Uh, too, many peop- too many people ask me to send messages to you. I'm like, no. Yeah, it's I'm annoying. Not. Yeah, Garrison, not, you're not, not my secretary. I know, I'm not like, that's not what I'm... Yet. Garrison, welcome to the last three years of my life. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, but that's funny, Sophie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 
<laughs> what were you going to say, Robert? I the, don't know. The, the, the um, there were people yeah. who were like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but Earth First has a problematic history with like eco-fascism and that sort of stuff. <sighs> yeah, I got um, some messages like that too. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things. They definitely are an organization that has said things in the past that I don't agree with. There's been um, specific people who do organizing with them that don't have great beliefs, specifically around like, yeah. you know, a lot of like in the old green movements, there's been, you know, a lot of like transphobia, some like yep. racism. Um, uh, it's some... it's not because they're the green movements. Like all, all left spaces deal with versions yeah. of these issues. And there's, yeah, there's a variety of stuff, you know, not like respecting like indigenous people. Yeah. Um, you know, that's been a, that's been a thing. Um, but the specific term ecofascism, I believe, is incorrect. Um because they don't advocate for the genocide of a specific group, um, and they don't have like far right populist policies. So like you can have bad opinions and bad ideas, and you can actually be racist uh, without actually being fascist, especially eco-fascist. Um, so I feel like people throw that word around a lot, and they don't actually know what it means. Um, but I, what were you specifically referring to, Robert? Um, I'm I'm trying to find the message here, but. Uh... Because I, I got a message saying that Earth First is bad because they're anti-natalists, and that means they're fascist, which isn't... Yeah, I definitely got that, yeah. Which isn't actually, like, I'm I'm just going to disagree with that because I don't think anti-natalism uh, equates fascism, especially anti-natalism for, like, something And anti-natalism like, is basically saying, don't don't make may, people. Maybe like, we should, don't maybe, make additional Maybe we people. should stop having more kids right now because yeah. we have a lot of problems to deal with, and maybe we shouldn't be having, like, you know, three kids. Which is not, it's it's not a take, I'm not an antinatalist. I don't actually disagree with that take, though, but I think it's more in the line of, like, the most fundamental of all human desires uh, for the majority of the population is to to make more people. Um, Which is kind of why I like antinatalism, because it has that thing that's opposite to what of a lot of humans natural reaction and like no one's forcing antinatalists don't want to force you to be antinatalist they just want to like bring up this as an idea yeah and i i think it's a valuable idea to discuss and i don't think it's i don't think you're i don't think you're embracing like the massacre of human beings or genocide in any way by saying like i think it'd be best if we didn't make any more people i'm not planning to have arguable point yeah i'm not planning to have any kids because i don't see why it would especially when there's so many like Children that can be adopted. Now, Garrison, we talked families. about you having kids so we could experiment with making them blue. <laughs> this is a separate conversation that <laughs> we talked about last night. This is a separate conversation. <laughs> Sorry, that's, we're not talking about involving the colloidal silver. No, we are not talking about this on the pod. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll just include that tantalizing hint. Yeah. I also just think, in general, when we talk about a group that's had a long history and a specific thing they're doing in the present. Yeah, uh, this has happened in other situations where people are like, well, you know, they did this, or some, one of them said this, and and there's a couple of things I feel about that. For one thing, it's it's like it's entirely possible that the people doing the thing in the present day have nothing to do with the people 20 years ago. No, yeah, like most of the people um, at the Earth First gathering, gathering were like in their 20s or around my age. Like they yeah. weren't in the they weren't in Earth First in 1980. Like that's not. Yeah. Like- <laughs> so it, it, I I feel like silly about kind of making them be held accountable for something somebody else said under a similar oh, yeah. banner and, decades and, ago. And on the podcast, I talked about how, like, people at the Earth, 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 Earth First Gathering, like, talked about this stuff. Like, the people talked about Earth First's, like, history and how they haven't handled some issues very well. There was a mm-hmm. lot, there was a massive effort for this gathering to, like, um, 
to like uplift and make sure everyone focuses yeah. on in- indigenous voices. Like they, they they invited over multiple indigenous groups to give talks on green resistance and like land back. Like th- that was a big focus of like making sure that this actually is something that is heard because people know like this is yeah this is something important. This is something that actually should yeah. be done. And there are I think in general when we talk about like holding organizations and individuals accountable for their past, um, what matters is like a mix of what they did and what they're doing. So obviously if Earth First had been saying 20 years ago, we need to wipe out all the Jews, I would be yeah, like, I wouldn't no, care no. what they were saying now. You know, yeah. it'd be like, yeah, you can't really come back from that. If you want to do a completely different thing, it needs to be a new organization. You, you, you don't, yeah. But they weren't. And I'm no. not saying that where I'm just making an example. But like, as a rule, I think we should embrace the fact that organizations and people can change throughout time and be better than they were in the past. Yeah. Um, and and learn from mistakes and and flaws, and I I feel pretty unwilling to condemn individuals or organizations for the mistakes of their past, although that is dependent upon the kind of mistake and the harm that it caused. Yeah, obviously. and like yeah. and how they address it in the future. It's like a lot of yeah. these, yeah, because like it wasn't like Earth First as an overall organization; it was specific people they were affiliated with. Uh, yeah. like you know specifically um like um. Edward Abbey has said some not great things around yep. different 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 social issues, and his books were extremely influential on on the mm-hmm. beginning of green resistance. But that's something people talk about now. Like that's something that is like discussed and debated. Um, and he yeah. was and he was like even in the eighties and nineties, he was like kicked out of Earth First gatherings for kind of being a loser, <laughs> like for for having these bad views. We're like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have you here anymore. Leave, go away. So like that was something that was even talked about back like back then as well. That is that isn't just a modern thing. Yeah. And I, I think in general, num- there's a couple of things. Number one, whenever we talk about like a, a, an organization in a specific context, they're doing this. That doesn't mean we're embracing everything they've done. And number two, whenever we talk about the history of of, of, of a movement or a group, I hope nobody ever takes that as like, here is the authoritative stance on the history of this thing. Like it's when we talked about the Black Panthers. There's a bunch of stuff we left out that's very important. Um, my hope with those episodes and my hope with anything we do is that it like inspires people to want to learn more and read more. And we're giving them a basis of understanding that they can use to expand their knowledge on an important topic. So please, we are, we are, there's like one thing, uh, collectively that, that Garrison and I have any kind of expertise on. And, uh, outside of that, you should not take anything we say as like, here's the comprehensive history of, of this. Because it's, I, I, I understand one thing, and it's, it's how the internet makes people shitty. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that that was some. That this whole thing was something I, I thought about when writing these episodes is how much to include of this stuff, and I did not feel like it was super important to discuss this stuff because it wasn't relevant to the topic yeah. of Stop Line no, Three. I think you did, and a it great wasn't job. relevant to the topic of like the current ongoing green resistance. If we want to do like a history of green activism, then yes, this is something that that would yeah. be that yeah, would come yeah. up. And and, um, and I think like at some point we probably should do like, absolutely talk about the just like oh, yeah. John Muir yeah. and like all of that shit. But like that's there's a yeah. ton of stuff we want to talk about that we haven't yet because it's a yeah. daily show. And my God, give us fucking time people <laughs> speaking of edward abbey you know what uh-huh sells quality yeah. monkey wrenches uh-huh okay all right that's fine that's the, okay the, the the maybe one of our sponsors it's Hopefully. possible we, what, i hope so ace hardware ace yeah. hardware if ace hardware sponsoring us they do sell you can get some good monkey wrenches from ace hardware quality for for, for fixing your faucet 
for fixing yep. your faucet. So go get wrench pilled and then listen to the rest of the show. Well, we're back. We just had a good discussion about what we're going to talk about, and we realized that it wasn't after the ad break. So here we are. Um, in, oh. in, in early September, we had an episodes about both California's climate and the ongoing recall election against uh, Gavin Newsom. So a few days after our episodes dropped, I think like the, 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 day, the, the day the second one dropped was, was election day. Yep. Um, we, we, we got the results in faster than what I was expecting. Um, and uh, Newsom did uh, handily uh, beat uh, Larry Elder uh, with like yeah, 60. Yeah, not 60. even close. Yeah, he, uh, uh, so not, not people, even people voted 61% no and like uh, 38% yes. Uh, so he, Newsom did a decent job in, in pushing off Elder. Um, so this, this, this whole recall process costed California taxpayers $276 million. Jesus. Well, it's not like we needed the money for anything else, Garrison. Come on. Yeah. So, you know, a few takeaways What else were we going to spend it on? Uh, literally Fire anything, li- Literally anything else. Water? Make, giving think houses California to, needs water and firefighters, Garrison? Come giving, on. Giving houses to people who need houses? I don't know. Um, no, no. Yeah, so takeaways from this, uh, the recall process still should absolutely be amended. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it should stupid re- as hell. Require, w- should require more than 12% signatures of the last voter turnout, um, and the government uh, should be requiring to get... To, if you're, if you're going to be elected into government, you should be required to get a majority of votes, um, not not a, not a just a plurality of a specific you know sect. So... There's a whole we 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 talked about the specific reasons why it was bad in those episodes. Those, those are still those are still like those are still valid. Those are still relevant because um, there's still the same issues. Yeah, and none of the fact that this turned out well had anything to do with the Democratic Party, who very no. nearly bungled it. Uh, no, yeah. and it and it doesn't it doesn't really impact it doesn't impact you know the California's climate issues so much and like just because Newsom's in office doesn't mean they're going to get much better you know there's still things no, that he just... needs to be pushed on to to you know make the climate a little bit more habitable in the meantime it 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 means that we will continue stumbling towards a cliff rather than speed rather running than sprinting off yeah. of it yeah yeah, yeah. so Which uh, is generally what voting for democrats means yeah I, I will say it's interesting to me that it, it doesn't seem like you can get a uh the vote was rigged thing to work unless the election is like kind of close this, initially this is the next thing i was going to talk about um okay yeah because because like in the week before the election uh the fox news republican party and larry elder and even trump were really starting to ramp up this idea that if elder loses that means the election was rigged uh this was like they were really pushing this hard and you know spreading it like they were giving links to it, a website like before he lost even to be like if like, you know when i lose use this website it was like okay that's yeah that okay, was very that's, funny that's weird um but on the night of the election elder seems to kind of clam uh, climb down from the in- inflammatory uh, like r- rhetoric around the election in his concession speech he told supporters let's be gracious in defeat um so he once that the actual results were in he really climb that down so we can read into that but the other thing i want us to read into here is that could this could this rhetoric around if we lose that means it was rigged could that disenfranchise republican voters from even showing up if they believe that all elections will be stolen from them god i hope so will that mean that there'll be less republican turnout if there's just if they think that it doesn't matter so that's the other side of things it's like i i'm not sure if 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 the other side effects that this that this rhetoric could have yeah, there, there's an interesting. So, 
during 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 the last election, like national election cycle, there was a bunch of interviews with people who weren't voting in Florida. And I thought it was really interesting because there were there were several people they talked to who were like, yeah, I don't vote because last time I voted was 2000 and they stole the election, which yeah, which literally, which which. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'd, I'd say that like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it is slightly different when like 2000 literally actually was, was stolen. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, was, like literally was, there was, was there was the brick like they, they're there. Roger, Roger Stone. It, yeah. yeah. Roger Stone led a riot to stop like the votes from being counted like whatever weird bush yeah. I, I think yeah was, it, people people got like struck like a bunch of people it, with like yeah. vaguely black names got like sh- their names struck off the uh like the voting yeah. rolls like there was a lot of yeah but yeah and, and I, don't, I don't know if it'll if, if it if the effect can work that strongly when it's like completely bullshit which, which I, I think that's yeah i i, I, interesting I, question. I don't know it's, it's hard to say because it's 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 unclear whether the voter turnout on the because like you know there were times where they were polling like fifty fifty between yeah. between between Newsom and Elder and it's unclear I think gen, definitely the big advertising push that corporate donors gave to Newsom in the month before the election did help get Democratic voter turnout you know like people voting for Newsom yeah like, getting it, people scared about yeah. uh, fucking so, like, Larry that, Elder as the governor so that, did not was not ineffective that that very much worked so that did increase turnout there but I don't know because like. With the whole election being stolen rhetoric, that can both increase Republican voter turnout, and it, there's also the side effect now where maybe it could decrease it because they're just disenfranchised about this concept. But yeah. this is kind of just speculation at this point. I don't have actual data backing up this claim right now. This is just something that I thought about while running this write-up. I'm like, huh, I wonder if this could be a contributing factor in the future. People really feel like they're always going to lose. Maybe they just not, not even are going to bother. Um, but it's hard to say. And so, like, you know, and the main reason why Elder lost wasn't due to Newsom's strength. It was because Elder is like is completely like he. It was he like was the most wildly extreme, unqualified. Yeah, like wildly unqualified and like one of the more extreme candidates like running. And yes, he did get a lot of support among Republicans, but among moderates and people, you know left of center in terms of like an American spectrum, uh, they're like, yeah, no, this is going to be a disaster if he, if he gets elected, and that's the main reason why he didn't. Um, it's not due to Newsom being great. Uh, but, I mean, S- Sophie did mention a few things that Newsom has done since then. Um, Sophie, do, 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 do you want to say the specific details, just so I don't have to look Yeah, Sophie's like... famously a big Newsom fan, so. so yeah. So, not... Come on. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, not to give Newsom credit, because this is like an obvious right thing to do situation, but... Um... At the beginning of October, the Senate Bill 796 was signed into law. It was a unanimous vote, and Newsom signed off on it to give back Bruce's Beach, which was owned by a black family, Willa and Charles Bruce, back in 1924. Their land was uh, illegally taken away from them. It's a beachfront plot in Manhattan Beach, and I signed into law to give it back. Uh, So that's cool. That is good. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, mo- more of that should be done. I mean, that yeah. is kind of the basis yeah. of like you know that is one side of land back is just giving pe- land back to people who used to have it. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, this is this isn't specifically tied to like indigenous stuff, but you know I've I've seen people make that same comparison for like yeah we should just be doing this more in general to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, um, I, that's a I'm glad that that was done. It's uh, also it's now illegal good. to remove a condom without consent in California, which is wait what. Yeah, really? Garrison, you're going to have yeah. to change a lot of things about how you have sex with Californians. That 
It's the first that is, state to that prohibit. That is real bizarre. To prohibit. You didn't realize that was legal. Permission. Yeah, during intercourse. That's the. It's the first state to do that. First of all. Huh. Yeah. And it's wild because under any reasonable definition, that's rape. No, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's 100%. It's just rape. It's, like, yeah, it's Ca- absolutely yeah. rape. California yeah. also now requires menstrual products in public schools. So that's bare minimum and great. Oh, that great. is good. That, yeah. that is. Wow. That, I didn't realize that, that it happened. Good. Yeah, and that's... I want to be clear here. I'm not giving Newsom credit for this, but if he had lost the recall election, none of this would be happening. No, it's nice that he, I'm sure some of this was him kind of providing a sop to the people who lined up to stop the recall, and those are good things that were done. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think I think that's sort of an important thing to understand about when politicians occasionally do good things. It's like, they they don't do good things because they want to do them. They, 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 they do things that benefit from you because they're either in some way scared of you, or it's because they need to buy, they buy you off. And and that that is you know that is that is a legitimate way that good things happen. I've like, got a, I've I, got a couple other. Uh, th- there's been a lot signed in recently, so I got a couple other ones that I that I think are relevant to our show. California will now streamline extend assisted death law. So uh, th- that that's that's good. That reduces the time until terminal patients can choose to be given fatal drugs. So good. Starting January first, uh, the waiting period required time a patient makes separate oral requests for medication will drop to forty eight hours. Down from the current minimum, fifteen days. That is, yeah, th- that that's is good. Pretty rad. Yeah, yeah, I'm that very is very supportive that is, of that. Yep. I mean, there's just there's there's a. Uh, I mean, we'll see if this. I mean, yeah, actually it's it's, is it's, a it's hard. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's here. it's hard. It's hard to be like worse than Larry Elder. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's yeah. my point. <laughs> this one definitely would not get get through for Larry Elder. No, no. California California enacts law to strip badges from bad officers. Like very vaguely written. Yeah, there. we'll that see is, how it works. That is yeah. very vague, but yeah, it will, it's, we'll see what happens. And yeah, like n- none of that stuff would have happened under a Larry Elder no. thing. That's and like, the I point. am surprised at like I'm surprised that some of those things actually got through because I'm I'm surprised that Democratic politicians would actually vote for those things to be put into office. That's why I was like shocked. And, and very, specifically, very specifically important. Specifically, like the condom thing. I, yeah, I was very, yeah, absolutely. And very important. I was not expecting that to go through Newsom at all. Newsom signs legislation to extend to-go cocktails. Wait. All right. That's fine. Sure. Okay. Come on. Fine. More, more drinking where am I, and Where are my to-go I'm cocktail fine. heads? Sorry. <laughs> All right, so at least Larry Elder's not in office. There's still a lot of climate issues, and maybe this rhetoric around stealing the elections not going to work every single time they do it. Um, no, that's, that's kind of nice. the main. That's the main things that I was going to talk about. Cool. And it is. It is. I mean, one of the things that people are talking about in a lot of the spaces I generally agree with is like the foolishness of voting as harm reduction. And uh, there's been a lot of, if you want to believe that it isn't, there's been a lot of information coming out from the Biden administration that will support that belief. Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing right now in California is pretty, it can be. Like, the, the these are not, none of this is going to fundamentally change the major problems that are confronting us, but, but a bunch of those things are going to, like, it's, life's going to be easier for some little girls whose families don't have much money. You know, life got easier for that one family who got their land back. Um, you know, potentially it's going to be easier to get bad police officer or to get particularly bad police officers off the street. And that's not, that's not nothing. Like when we say voting can be, and I'm not saying that it, it usually is, but when yeah. we, it can reduce harm, that's what it means. It means that like, Oh, some bad things that that would 
be worse are not as bad because of this. Not that everything is better. A lot of stuff will be the same and is the same in California. Like ecologically, nothing ecologically, yet has really fundamentally, yeah. ch- fundamentally yeah. changed. But some shit's a little easier for certain groups of people as a result of some stuff and that just specific, happened that wouldn't speci- have happened. Specifically, I, I think the uh, getting getting more like contraceptive products um, yeah. and menstrual products inside public schools is one of the literally the best things we can do. Like mm-hmm. like for the whole country, that is like something that is, if that was required yeah. in every public school, that would make so many people's lives better. That, uh, that to, like, is that a is ridiculous that, degree. Yeah significantly reduces harm in a specific way. And I, I think that just because like, yeah, I mean, it's not going to stop us all from burning up, um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. Yeah. So cool. that, th- th- those, those are the three stories that I wanted to give some updates for. Um, Cause I know, you know, there were changes happened, you know, very soon after posting those mm-hmm. episodes. Um, I still think the California ones are worth listening to because they do lay out a lot of stuff oh, yeah. around yeah, around California's climate yeah. um, and the specific weird stuff that it has with its specific weird things it has with its election process. Um, I think the line three episodes are going to be pretty good to go back to as well. Um, and then uh, I add the, the the specific cop city thing in Atlanta. That is the stuff that I am. It's going to be the most like ongoing thing still because that that's going to be an ongoing project. So I'm sure we'll come back to the cop city at different points throughout the next few months. So that that that, that that's the updates. Um any 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 closing notes from either Christopher, Robert or Sophie? Yeah, just no. just I do. Well, excuse me, sir. Okay, sorry. all right, Sophie. Sir. Go. Uh just yeah. I just just a reminder we've said this earlier in the episode that like we're just giving you brief brief snippets about this stuff. There's a lot there's a lot of really good articles online that go go deep into these things and we'll post our sources on the website. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We 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 do we do a good job. I think most of the time patting but, ourselves on the uh, back, Chris. Yes. Do, yes. But we do but, a good job. We're great. <laughs> yeah. We're we're the only heroes. I in really the world. like I think us. That's fair to say. <laughs> Absolutely. But do do not have a podcast be the only source of information. Yeah. No, absolutely. That you have about a thing like <laughs> don't do not don't listen. Just I to am us. begging you. No, like for the love <laughs> of God, listen to if if you Other want things. more of a of a left perspective that is that that goes in some directions we don't. Uh, it's going down is a lovely place to check out Margaret Killjoy's. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Live like the world is dying. Saint Andrew's uh, YouTube channel. Um, he does some some really incredible stuff. Um, you know, there's all sorts of good people out there. And then also like history books more than anything, like history yeah. books, history yeah. books were the thing that radicalized me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If, if you want to read more about the, the, the Newsom notable laws signed recently, the KCRA in Sacramento did a, did a really good breakdown article. Yeah. That all. Oh, note- oh, sorry, Sophie. It's okay. And and as a note, we we will be doing more episodes like this over time as like stories that we cover have additional things happen to them. This is like we don't want to just be like dropping a story and then ignoring whatever happens next. Um, sometimes that'll mean following up with people that we're talking to on the ground. But, you know, we are trying to like uh, keep you updated on the things that we think are important, you know, even when they end uh, uh, in a in a broadly positive sense yeah. or whatever. And yep. uh, lastly, what was the name of that brisket place in Atlanta? Because I'm sure people are going to ask about it. Oh, I don't remember. It was some shitty little place in the middle of uh, <laughs> South Atlanta um, in like a fucking strip mall. 
That was really helpful. I don't remember, uh, Sophie. It was like 11 years ago. What do you? I don't remember it yesterday. It was the best brisket you've ever had. and It was. And you don't. But I, the best, bri- the, it, like, if you know anything about good barbecue, the best barbecue you ever have is either cooked by, yeah. like, your uncle or is cooked in some shitty little place with that a bathroom that wouldn't pass a code inspection. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. The, 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 more, the more codes it violates, the better the brisket. Yeah. Um, anyway. If you see the <laughs> chef actively shit on the grill, that means Jesus. it's going to be incredible. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyways, Twitter and Instagram. What happened here? Pod and Cool Zone mm-hmm. Media. Subscribe to the, the feed and leave a five star review. That's mm-hmm. it. Don't, don't, don't shit on your brisket grill. Don't shit on it. everything. All right. Bye. Shit life. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER this is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this, I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter, that's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Uh, Garrison, is that good? Is nope. that the show? Nope, just keep going, though. Okay, well, <laughs> it could happen here is the show. Uh, that atonal noise is is my introduction this week because I'm a hack and a fraud. Who isn't a hack and a fraud is, uh, is our guest this week, St. Andrew. St. Andrew, you are a solar punk anarchist uh, from Trinidad, um, you have a YouTube channel um, where you talk about solar punk. Um, you talk about stuff like seed bombing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just very excited to have you on the show because I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel. Thank you. Glad to be here. Big fan of your work as well. Andrew, I kind of wanted to start with why this, why solar punk is important because um, I think it's easy for folks who just kind of skim it to see it. It's just like, oh, it's an aesthetic. It's maybe an art style or a fiction style um, maybe something that's neat, but not something that has like a lot of inherent value to people trying to change the world. And obviously you disagree with that. I disagree with it too. Um, a quote I keep coming back to again and again is one from Werner Herzog in the 1970s. Uh, and it was something along the lines of, I think that without better myths, we're destined to go the way of the dinosaurs. Um, right. It yeah. reminds me actually of, um, I forget his name right now, but there's this excellent, excellent book called The The Truth About Stories. And I think what it really emphasizes throughout the book is the importance of stories and how stories impact how we navigate the world, which is yeah. why I sort of embraced solar punk, you know, as a story that we can work with going forward. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it's incredibly important to have better stories, better myths, because for one thing, I think where the left falls down a lot is not having is is accurately diagnosing the problems without providing a better look at at the at the future, you know, um, and when the problems are when the people who do kind of propose solutions, it's often um, not in a way people can feel one of the benefits that 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 the right has that fascism has is that they they're very good at providing people with myths and providing people with kind of a fictional look at, at their idealized world that draws people in, you know, you they, can laugh yeah. at the right, you know, they have a lot of people that work mm-hmm. on like meta narratives and that's yeah. very, very core to their ideology. Um, so I, I guess where I'd, I'd like to start with you, Andrew, cause this is kind of the first time I think we've really talked about solar punk on uh on this show uh, even though from the beginning before any of these episodes dropped this was always a central part of our discussion about what the show was was going to be um would you kind of provide an introduction to to what solar punk is for our listeners sure sure so uh i would say that solar punk is a vision of the future that places emphasis on the existing world and how we get to that future from where we are now so it emphasizes the need for environmental sustainability, for self-governance and for autonomy and social justice. It emphasizes the need for 
you know, human and ecocentric ends to really be in sync. And it aims to really heal the current rift between humanity and nature. It also recognizes, of course, that there isn't this binary between climate change happens and climate change doesn't happen. Rather, it understands that how we navigate it will uh, have a variety of consequences and some will be positive, some will be negative, but it's up to us to really shape that. Yeah, and it's um, I want to drill into a couple of facets of that, but I, I want to quickly plug one of your YouTube videos for folks who kind of want a more involved um, explanation and, and, and background. You have a video called What is Solar Punk on your channel, St. Andrewism, like Andrew ISM, um, that I think is a fantastic introduction, not just to like the aesthetics of solar punk, but some of the practical uh, some of the practical kind of expressions of it. And and two of the ones you list as like examples of here's here's what this is as like actual praxis, you know, and not just an aesthetic is is seed bombing. Um and then you talk about this this very interesting kind of like terracotta air conditioning, which I think is I, I think is neat because it's it's that one of the problems that I think with kind of some versions of 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 particularly kind of on the more liberal end of 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 solar punk imagining is just sort of like ways of replacing um ways of gaining the same kind of consumptive benefits that exist i, I guess not even not even solar punk like greenwashing right greenwashing, like looking yeah. at yeah greenwashing yeah. like here let's get the same consumptive benefits we get skyscrapers with just trees with on them yeah, yeah skyscrapers exactly. with same trees level on of it. consumerism yeah. same level of you know destructive yeah. extractive practices but we have some flowers and some trees, so yeah. yeah, and that's not enough, but at the same time, there are things that aren't like air conditioning is contributes massively to climate change. It's also not a Indeed. luxury, like if you live in a place where it's hundred and twenty <laughs> degrees a lot of the summer, that's not a luxury, yeah, this is coming from someone in a tropical country, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's definitely, um, definitely a necessity yeah, so i I, I wonder if you could talk about kind of those two, uh, I mean, or if you have different ones you'd like to pick, but just kind of what you see as sort of the praxis expressions of solar punk, sort of beyond the aesthetic, although we're going to drill into the aesthetic some too, because I also think that's important. Right. So I think some of my favorite manifestations of solar punk in a practical context are things like um, guerrilla gardening. Guerrilla gardening is probably the biggest one because it's one that someone could literally pick up and do today. Or tomorrow, you know, as soon as they hear about it, learn about it, just get some clay, get some seeds, you know, and put those things together. And as you're walking home or walking to the store, just toss them wherever there's some free dirt. Um, so that's a fun one. There's also, of course, things like a little bit more involved, like community gardening and particularly forest gardening, because that will provide a level of food autonomy and agency for people who have been alienated for a long time from the process of food production. Um, there are also practices like coppicing or coppiching, and it's like a way to produce lumber without chopping down a whole set of trees. So you are able to get the wood from the trees, but the tree remains alive. Um, there is also things like of course, solar-powered um, technology, whether it be algae-based um, windows that, you know, extract energy from the sun or 
solar sails or solar ovens uh, or like the terracotta air conditioning, which by the way, I learned recently can't really work in a human environment. Yeah. But yeah, there are a lot of different opportunities there. Also, there are things like, you know, tool shares and maker spaces and seed libraries, all different ways to sort of bring it into fruition. Solar punk, that is. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I, I think a lot of that's really valuable. Um, I'm interested in, in part, sort of your, your attitude on, um, what, uh, uh, let me think about how to phrase this. Um, what do you think are kind of the things as we talk about sort of the things that can be at least potentially replaced, um, with, with less extractive, less consumptive methods as sort of an example of solar punk practices, replacing those things. There's also things that we're not going to be able to have if we actually want to live in a more sustainable um, future that that doesn't uh, contribute to some of the nightmares that we're all going to be increasingly facing. Um, yeah. You're, you know, and again, I, I think it's it's telling that so much of kind of the, the, the future fantasies of that are written by people who come from, you know, my part of the world, the United States, focus on like kind of post-scarcity methods of, of, guaranteeing the continuation of consumption just through in some cases like fantastic methods um you know magical 3d printers and the like um you come from a very different part of the world very different perspective what do you see as the things that like we're going to have to give up coming from a country that is actually reliant on oil and natural mm -hmm. gas production we have to get rid of cars yeah we definitely absolutely have to get rid of cars um freighter ships as well and really the whole way that you know global supply chains are structured right now not to say that there won't be any sort of global um sharing of resources in the future but the way that it's happening right now it can't continue to go on we can't continue to structure our cities and our lives around cars you know and other methods of gas guzzling transportation because we're literally going to run out and we've known this for a long time but it's nearing the, the day is nearing closer and closer and um yeah we we have to find a way to do without it yeah and it's it's i i think tell like there's a couple of things that are important one of them is you can't just say we have to stop global trade because and global travel because the people have have sought and done that for as long as there have been people in one form or another it's it's a fundamentally Indeed. human thing but there are aspects of it like you know expecting that every kind of fruit and vegetable will be available year round which is certainly yeah. a thing that we in the united states expect um that doesn't that that's not part of a realistic future um and if it's part of the future then it's only going to be part of the future for an ever shrinking chunk of of the country and you can see that in sort of um, or of the of the West, and you can see that in kind of um, the the like what we're dealing with right now with like the supply line shortages and failures, and like one of the I think the symbols of how far we have to go in my country is the degree to which people are freaking out by the fact that Christmas presents might be late, um, <laughs> let alone being like, yeah, you might not be able to buy coffee um, um, ever or all the time. You know, you might not be able to get yeah. uh, tomatoes in December. 
Um, Which reminds me, um, hmm. I think one benefit to guerrilla gardening and that tool sort of mindset is as you learn to sow, you also learn to reap, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people who get into guerrilla gardening also end up getting into foraging. And there are apps and stuff that you could download that allow you to, you know, learn how to identify plants in your area. And you'd be surprised the number of plants in your area that are, you know, useful for teas or for salads or for whatever purposes that can be used as replacements. Well, I'm not sure if they could replace coffee, but they could be beneficial um, in recognizing how we have to live with our local ecosystems, basically. Yeah. And a big, you know, when you talk about live, learning how to live with our ecosystems, stuff like planting um, forest gardens and the like, um, or food forests, I think is the term. Um, I think something that has to be discussed is is the matter of, of indigenous sovereignty, especially when we're talking about, you know, it's not just, you know, North America. A lot of chunks of the globe, indigenous people had spent you know, in some cases, thousands of generations setting forests up in order to sustainably produce food. Um, and when uh, when colonialism arrived, that was often just seen as like, oh, this is this is these are wild places for us to for us to extract or tear down and replace with monocultures, you know, single crops. Um, and so a, a big part of actually building back that capacity, the capacity of us to to survive off of the food that can sustainably grow where we live is is looking back to those indigenous methods and and also um you know giving back land in a lot of cases. Um and yeah, I, I that's something you talk about in your videos that I think is really important to um to 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 explain to people. Yeah, I mean there's there's really is no way to separate the violent and oppressive institution of colonialism with the ecocidal nature of modern states. You know, those two are deeply intertwined, deeply married together. And so you can't fight climate change without addressing the issue of sovereignty, of indigenous sovereignty and land back. Yeah, it's... um. It's really interesting. I've been I've been up hunting on Mount Hood with a friend who is uh, who went to school for like forestry management. And as we were driving, we had to drive through a chunk of the reservation in order to get to the uh, the BLM land where we're we're able to hunt. And he pointed it out. And once he did, it was immediately obvious just how different the land under indigenous control looked from the, the, the land, you know, just feet away that was being managed by the federal government in terms of like how much better the, the forest management was, how much how much smarter it was it was managed in order to. Um, reduce the chances of like a ladder fire that that actually kills you know the trees and whatnot. There's this whole thing blowing up on Twitter right now where you've got uh, a chunk of Marxists who are are trying to frame land back as uh, just like shifting ownership of resources, which I think is really missing the point. What I find interesting about Twitter <laughs> is yeah. that the exact same discourses are repeated over and over and over again. So yeah. I remember this exact conversation happening around this time last year, around April last year, um, earlier this year as well. It's just the same discourses get recycled over and over again. And it's reached a point for me where I realized that these people uh, don't want to learn about land back, what it really means, because they are invested in 
the structure as it exists and they don't want to have to interrogate that. So, yeah. <laughs> this found out to be an interesting thing of note. Yeah, and it's... um. It's 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 frustrating. Um, I, I guess that that acts as like a general uh, uh, description of of Twitter discourse, but Cert- certainly does. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's telling the degree to which people, even on the left, treat it as a fantasy as opposed to doggedly pragmatic. Um, and and proven so, like proven by like like. You know, like you can read UN reports that will that will essentially say land back in the space of a 500 page, you know, study on how indigenous land management functions a a great deal better than um, than a lot of the stuff that's like centralized by the federal government. We're we're, like our federal government is terrible at land management. Um, And it's part of the uh, it's part of the problem. I think one of the things that that excites me about solar punk as an aesthetic and idea is is getting back to this relationship with the land as opposed to talking about just preserving it um, as as talking about managing it, because because none of our none of the land that people live on is like wild in the sense that people mean it as it's been cultivated. And that's that's the thing, right? The whole philosophy of, you know, um, land uh, preservation as was taken up by the U.S. government with the whole, um, you know, you can stop forest fires kind of thing. Ended mm-hmm. up leading to more forest fires down yeah. the line because if we have a role in the ecosystem. We're not just there to stand back from afar and just observe it. So when we don't do our part to manage the underbrush and whatnot and clear it away and uh, exercise, you know, control fires, but we end up in the situation we're in today, you know? Cultivation, not just sterile preservation. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you talk about well, because one of the more frustrating discourses, this is not just a Twitter thing, this has been going on for years, is the discourse around GMO crops. And usually, I would say like the two most commonly heard sides are GMOs are bad because, you know, Monsanto cancer, whatever, or GMOs are good um, end, end thought. Um, and the thing that you point out, which is, I think, the accurate take is GMOs, the, the the preponderance of evidence says that, like, there's nothing inherently dangerous about genetically modified crops. But the way in which they're often used is in order to create these massive monocultures is really toxic. So there's a lot of promise um, for GMOs in terms of keeping our our existence on this planet sustainable. But what's not sustainable is the kind of industrialized agriculture where you have 10,000 acres of one thing, which just doesn't happen in nature. Exactly. Exactly. And if you look at how genetic modification took place prior to, you know, all advancements in genetic modification technology, um, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with the dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of varieties of just corn that were Mm -hmm. present in the Americas prior to colonization. A lot of those varieties were wiped out or were suppressed in favor of these monocultures. But if we're able to cultivate a diversity of these crops and maybe bring some of them back through genetic modification, that will really help us with you know, food resilience in a world with an increasingly unpredictable climate. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I mean, you, I think you said it perfectly. I want to move back to kind of what I introduced the episode with, which is talking about the value of of fiction and myth making in a in a very pragmatic sense. 
I, I guess I'll start by saying I think one of the clearest signs of the danger that we're in and how toxic our society has gotten. Um, and I am speaking from a, a, a primarily U.S. centric standpoint here, but I don't think it's unique to the United States is the extent to which. Trust me, um, as, <laughs> as the saying goes, when the U.S. sneezes, Trinidad catch a cold. So anytime <laughs> there's some phenomenon happening mm-hmm. in the U.S., there are the copycats down yeah. here as well. So. And I, I do think this is pretty global. I mean, you see it in like South Korean films and, and it's yep. it, it, just I, I all know, over. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. The obsession <laughs> with apocalypse. And when we when we go to the future, it's always a dystopia. Um, there's a degree to which we've almost forgotten how to imagine utopia or even not just utopia, just a way of living that is an improvement yeah. in a we've, lot of ways, a future that's better. We've forgotten yeah. to do both utopian fiction and any just kind of like positive fiction in yeah. a lot of ways i mean you, just you, yeah it's, yeah it's, it's, it's understandable because the world is kind of terrible right now in a yeah. lot of in a lot of ways but there's also there's been utopian fiction inside other terrible worlds as well i think just the modern interconnected media sphere has really rewarded this type of like dystopian and collapse-based apocalypse fiction yeah and i'm sure that's that's worth interrogating why but it is a problem that needs to be solved yeah, and it is. And it and you're I think it's important to know it's not entirely based in how fucked up things are cuz like when the first Star Trek came out, yeah. we were at like the height of the Cold War. Things were terrible. There was and, a lot of utopian <laughs> fiction during World War yeah, II. During World War II. Um I I will always be impressed by the fact that Gene Roddenberry saw it as incredibly important both to be like okay well in the future like in the middle of the civil rights movement in the future we will have overcome like racism, but not just that, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to stick a Russian on the bridge too, because nations are going to end as a concept and like this stuff won't matter. Um, and that just, that kind of utopian fiction, at least at the, at the scale of popularity that, you know, Star Trek was in its time just isn't present anymore. And I, that's tremendously worrying to me. And I, I see a lot of hope in, in solar punk for that. Um, I'm, I guess for starters, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this and your interest in the, uh, Andrew, what you think is like the pragmatic value of, of, of positive, a fiction that, that, that imagines a better world. Yeah. So I've done probably, um, I think I've done like two videos on solar punk so far. Um, two major videos on solar punk mm-hmm. as well as a smaller video. Two other smaller videos. Um, and what I've seen in the comments and in the general social media reaction again and again is Solar Punk saved my life. You know, Solar Punk mm-hmm. has given me hope. You know, I was slipping into despair, but this video really gave me a jump start to try something new and to start afresh and to pursue action as opposed to just lying down and taking whatever comes next. And that, that is it for me, you know. I think the fact that Solar Punk offers, like, an energizing vision. It's not just a vision. It's an energizing vision because yeah. in every step of the way, it shows what you can do. You know, when you, show, when you look at Solar Punk art or um, you look at the small but growing genre of Solar Punk literary media, or, you know, you look at, well, there's not that many solar punk video games right now, but hopefully there will be in the future. 
um, when you look at the various forms of solar punk media that are coming out and people's responses to them, you see that it's not like, as you're all mentioning, like Star Trek, where it's all this far out technology that we can only aspire to for now. Yeah. You know, solar punk is something that you can literally put in your backyard or your balcony or your home or your school or your community. You know, you could put these things in place like from now, you know, and you could incorporate it into your politics as, you know, as they are. And they could also help to push your politics forward, you know, because through solar punk, we can open up discussions about, okay, so how do we ensure that people live comfortably within the parameters of, you know, the earth's carrying capacity? You know, you open up discussions about indigenous sovereignty, you open up discussions about um, the relationship between the global north and the global south and responsibility with regard to our response to climate change. Well, you open up a lot of different discussions through the realm of Swilapunk. It energizes people, as I said. And yeah, I think that is its pragmatic purpose. It doesn't stand alone, of course, but it is a driving force. Yeah. Would you kind of give out a list of if people are, you know, if this is someone's first introduction to the concept of, of solar punk, what is some reading you want to draw people towards? What is some fiction? Like, I know you mentioned The Dispossessed by uh, Le Guin, right? Um, yes. Which often gets cited. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested in kind of other other recommendations you might have for our listeners. Are you that? Right. So um, I'm still getting into the genre myself, so I don't have too many um, recommendations. There are some um, decent short story collections, um, like Sun Vault by a couple different authors. There's also multi-species cities, solar punk, urban futures. Um, and the one I read most recently was Ecotopia, which is quite, is much older than all the others. It's actually a book that was published in the, in 1975. Um, and not all aspects of its politics are things I agree with, but I think for a first, um, it was one of the really the first of its kind in that sort of eco-utopian genre that really laid out what this society would look like. Um, the book is structured uh, in a series of novel entries and notebook reports by a journalist from the United States who has gone to this country called Ecotopia, which is sort of where the Pacific Northwest states are. And um, he's basically breaking down, he's going to different parts of the country and breaking down how they have lived and how they have decided to structure their lives. Um, and even though not every aspect of it is one that I would want to see implemented, I still think that it really sparks the imagination, really gets you thinking, well, maybe I wouldn't do it this way, but how else could this be done? And I think the capacity for solar punk stories to just generate that thought and generate one's imagination is very useful in a world where we don't really get to use our imaginations much. Not really since childhood, you know. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, I uh, 
I think it's often understated the degree to which using your imagination is a vitally necessary part of actual radical politics. Yep. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who consider themselves radicals, you know, some of these, some of these, not to, you know, slam every Marxist Leninist on the planet, but certainly some of the ones who are coming up with these bad faith criticisms of land back. It's like, you're not a radical, you're a conservative who wants to go back to a different kind of problematic thing. Um, Exactly. Ignore the fact that the Soviet exactly. Union poisoned like the largest body of water in yeah. Europe, and, you know, all, all the different things that the Soviet Union did that were horrible for the environment and extractive and yeah, colonial. I find it interesting that, you know, yeah. there are these people who call themselves radicals, but at the very first um, encounter with a radical idea, their first instinct is to shut down. Their mm-hmm. first instinct is to just push back against it. Whereas, not to toot my own horn or anything, but, you know, when I see an idea that I haven't encountered before, that may seem strange to me, that challenges some of my preconceived notions, my first reaction is not to shout about how this goes against everything Lenin said. You know, my first reaction is to investigate it and to open space for it in my mind to really, you know, turn it around and imagine what it might look like and how it might fit with what I have learned about before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's great advice for radical politics. It's also just good life advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Especially for engaging with ideas that you are less keen on at the moment or, or, yeah. or just unaware of. Yeah, I absolutely. Like, yeah. I mean, my whole thing yeah. is if I have like a strong gut reaction to something, it might be because it may be hitting a part of me that might be benefiting from that system. You know, I mean, I don't benefit from the system in a lot of respects, you know, as a black guy from the Caribbean, but as a man, as in as a cis head man, you know, I do have privileges that I must be aware of and I can't just like be so quick to shut down, you know, something that might make me a bit uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. I think that's such a valuable thing to keep in mind, especially as a, a more or less cis white guy, like a, you know, a significant number of people listening are, if you're uncomfortable by a new idea, is it uh, is it because the idea is bad or is it because it it strikes at an area in which you may not even have like thought about being privileged? Like, I'm I'm uncomfortable. I ha- even though there's no I have no intellectual argument against it with the idea of uh, of ending our use of cars as they exist because I love I love to drive, but that's also heavily rooted in 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 tremendous privilege on my behalf. Um, American and, car culture and so yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, we did talk about that a bit in the opening episodes of season two, the idea that like a more, you know, when we, we kind of had our little utopian ending, the idea that like, well, maybe you'd have a car that's communally owned and used for certain tasks. But, you know, the idea of, of, of car culture as the center of a city is, um, is death. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. death. When we talk about getting past cars, it's not to say that like people will never use vehicles that move again. Like obviously we will. They're necessary for some. We're not tasks. all going back to horse-drawn buggies. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the last things on like solar punk 
and kind of tying into the whole kind of nature of the shows. I, I really liked, Andrew, your point on like how solar punk is like an energizing force. And I feel like we have very few of those on the left and especially on the anarchist left. Um, mm-hmm. Like I've, 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 I've had my decent stint of like anarcho nihilism and the, the <laughs> yeah, problem, you sure have, the, 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 <laughs> like the problem with that is like, it's very easy. Like anarcho nihilism is one of like the easiest ideologies mm-hmm. to, to, to grasp onto because it validifies all of your bad feelings. Yeah. Um, but it also, it, most of the people who I know who are like real into anarcho nihilism, they're generally not very happy people <laughs> like because no. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of miserable all the time. Um, and sure, they'll like scoff at like solar punk as like some like greenwashed yogurt commercial, like you know, <laughs> uh, like a uh, u- utopian thing. But also, like it's actually lots of solar punk that we've talked about. It's like actually about doing specific things. Like it's actually like actually going to do something rather than just being an insurrecto kid um, or just just you know talking about nihilist zines and books on twitter for all day and i think mm-hmm. w- one of one of your one of my favorite videos of yours is your video on the psychology of collapse um yeah because yeah i think that, that's one of my my, my favorites as well <laughs> it's 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 a, it's a it's really just like a, a masterpiece and how deep you get into every different type of collapse thinking because it's not just on the right it's not 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 on the left it's not just whether you're, you know, more, you know, anarchist, more authoritarian, it's like you get into every specific type of thinking that plays into this idea around collapse. And I think if I, I, re- I recommend everyone check out your channel, and especially watch your sol- solar punk videos, but specifically on the topic of collapse, like, you know, part of our show, we were trying to kind of be a little bit like anti-collapse. Um, and I think your, your video really shows the depth of that topic um, and how to approach this because yeah. collapse is a feeling like it's a feeling we all have and it needs to be interrogated. And I think your video does just a magnificent job interrogating that feeling. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I can't overemphasize how important that is because I, I, one of the major failings, there were a number of victories for kind of anarchist thought, particularly within the United States during the, um, the insurrection last year. One of its tremendous defeats is that, it has become characterized in a huge number of people's eyes as breaking windows and and starting fires. Um, and yeah, that's the, a lot of that is because the media is trash um, and is trash at reporting on on all of this stuff. But some of it is because a lot of people have let that be their primary praxis. Um, yeah. And that... Again, I don't care about people breaking windows. I don't care about people lighting dumpster fires. But if that's what you're presenting to the world as your praxis, that doesn't appeal to people. And you have to. Um, because you have to remember that yeah. anarchism is not just destructive. It is also constructive. Yeah. That's the constructive part we need to be boosting more than ever. And there were some, you know, from the context of Portland, some really strong examples of that last year. The incredible amount of mutual aid that was was put together in a very short efforts. period of time. Yeah, during the fire relief was yeah. was incredible. Um, and the Red House, the uh, the eviction defense occupation, was a really good riposte to you know the disaster that was the Chaz in Seattle. That this was like this was an area that was temporarily autonomous from the police that did not collapse into violence that succeeded in its goal and that cleaned up after itself and presented an option for people like this is how it can look when we try to evict people you know this is what can happen um so i, I think there i don't want to like be too negative but i think that a lot of folks 
because of um, for a variety of reasons. You know, the the there's been so much focus on kind of the insurrection. Not even that, because I think that building can be insurrectionist. I, I think that be, seed yeah. bombing, guerrilla gardening can be profoundly it's, insurrectionist. It's, it's like um, destruction has an immediate result of making you feel better, right? Yeah. It, it has an immediate it's rush of, of endorphins and hormones. It makes you happy when you do it. It's, it, it, is, it is an exhilarating act and you feel like you're accomplishing something. Allegedly. What's, what's harder <laughs> is to like have that same feeling by doing seed bombing, right? By, yeah. by actually like improving your community slowly through these types of like so, 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 solar park ideas they don't have the same immediate emotional reaction. Yeah. So a lot of people, like, when they, you know, think about what insurrection is, they can default to this destructive tendency, which destruction has its time and place. Um, but if that's your only praxis, you're, n we're not going to improve yeah. the world at all. Like, right, it's, that's not going to do anything. Um, There's a... help, helping through, you know, giving out food, helping through giving out socks and clothes, helping through all of these so solar punk ways. These are things that actually, like, are going to yeah. improve things on a tangible level, yeah. they, the, and they're going to make more people be like, "Oh, hey, what what are these anarchists doing? That's actually interesting." Versus, "Oh, what are these anarchists doing? This is stupid. Ignore everything they say." Yeah, you have to remember as well that um, you know there's seeds of solar punk in Kropotkin's writings. You know, from the conquest yeah. of bread to mutual aid, and um, those are sort of things that should be just as emphasized as the destructive, uh, exhilarating aspects of anarchism. Yeah. There's a line in a Frank Turner song, a couple of lines actually, in a song called 1933 that I go back to a lot. But one of them is, you can't fix the world if all you have is a hammer. And, and that's, I guess, what I see as like the primary practical benefit of solar punk just as an aesthetic, as a piece of fiction, is getting people to I I expand their toolbox. Yeah, get yourself a trowel, you know, yeah. some um, some screwdrivers, you know. Yeah, keep the hammer. You need that sometimes too, but <laughs> let's Absolutely. let's grab some other tools. Exp expand the toolbox. I think is a yeah. really great metaphor for yeah. all of this type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's most of what we're going to get into today. Um, there's a couple of pieces of, of things I would want to read. One of them isn't. Uh, this isn't directly. I think it predates the solar punk, but it it uh. I think feeds into some of what I think it emotionally feeds into a lot of what we're talking about here. It's a, an essay from David Graeber called "The Shock of Victory," um, which I think is really useful to ah, read. That's a good one. Yeah, um, and I would also recommend um, uh, Corey Doctorow's new fiction novel "Walk Away," um, which I think is oh a, yeah, a, a really wonderful piece. That was of, a wonderful, hmm? wonderful book. I should have included yeah. my um, recommendations, yeah. but it was really great. Yeah, I, I read it recently and it made me um it made me feel the way like as a fiction writer that a grid piece of fiction should, which is like I, I felt bad. Uh yeah, I felt bad about some about of the things that I had written because there's 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 <laughs> such there's so much more courage. Because I I wrote a piece of fiction that has some solar punk elements, has some quasi utopian elements in the dystopia, but I didn't have the courage to kind of go as far as as Corey did and to imagine a kind of pacifism that he he has the courage to kind of put into the into the hands of his his protagonists. Like I I I really respect that about the book. I mean, the book goes in some very interesting AI directions as well. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it's got some great shit. Um, and I always enjoy Corey's uh, Corey's love of Burning Man, um, of what it could be as opposed <laughs> to kind of what the what what some of it's turned into. 
But yeah, um, Andrew, is there anything else you wanted to get into before we uh, we close this out? I, w- I just want to remind people to check on your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we are all going through various stages of collapse, as I outlined in my video. And, you know, we shift between them from time to time. So try not to go through it alone. You know, there's no... Yeah. There's no I in solar punk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, check out uh, St. Andrew on YouTube at St. Andrewism. Um, Andrew, is there any anything else you wanted to kind of plug uh, from your own your own uh, personal work? Yeah. So um, other than the, you know, the solar punk videos and the collapse videos, I want to remind, sorry, I rather I want to shout out my video on black anarchism. Uh, I think that is a pretty essential look into uh, the history of Black anarchism in the United States and in the world. Uh, I also want to recommend um, my video on the psychology of authoritarianism. Uh, I know a lot of people have family members who are conservative or on the right or maybe leaning fascist. And I think that might be helpful for, you know, helping them to or rather helping you to understand where their mindset's at. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. you know, check out my video on uh, Puma Blitzing. I think that was a pretty fun one as well. It breaks down a lot of, it, bre- it breaks down how you can go about implementing food forests or permaculture gardens wherever you find yourself. Awesome. Um, thank you very much for being on the show, Andrew. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow or if this comes out friday we'll be back you know another day we'll be back at some point you know you know how this works you understand podcasts enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm signing up and playing is so easy simply sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matter more than ever place your money line prop and parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER this is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Podcast. All right, Chris, you go. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that I think for the first time is just me and Robert. Uh huh. This is this is the very first time that this is happening. You're 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 all here at a moment of legendary significance and historic importance. So try to try to face it with the requisite awe. That's all I ask. Yes, and and another thing that. Man, this is a terrible transition. Something else mm-hmm. we're facing with requisite awe is mm-hmm. uh, weird shortages of goods and price increases. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fucking rad. I was just at the the Asian market today, um, and they did not have the snack chips that I most prefer. Oh so no! This is now officially a calamity. Um, is, we've entered crisis of, Phil. of historic proportion. Yeah, I, I think I don't think we're going to live through this one. Nope, we're we're doomed. We can't look yeah. without without the Asian snack chips. Like, we're done. For it's that. the ones that are like they're like p- pieces of seaweed, but that have been temp- fried in tempura batter. Ooh, oh, that sounds completely really good. out. Tragic, absolutely tragic. Horrifying. I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I mean, you've got a script, so I'll I'll probably just let you do that in the not too distant future. But one one of the things that's frustrating to me, although maybe it shouldn't be, because I I'm probably partly responsible for this, is that this is being. Um, this is often kind of being talked about with pe- by people online as like, oh, it's a sign that like society is 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 crumbling, and and what they mean by that is that like, oh, we we just don't have stuff, like we're we're not able to like keep up with with demand and like the ability to produce these things is crumbling, and it's actually much more com- complex than that, and a lot less rooted in a lack of specific resources and more decisions made under capitalism about how the supply chain would work. And it's, I, I don't know, I think it's important because it is, you can say it still is like a situation where this is an example of the system falling apart, but it's not falling apart because we don't have the paper to make toilet paper with. It's falling apart because decisions were made 
in order to increase the stock prices of companies by reducing the amount of products that they kept on hand. And that's uh, led to an incredibly fragile system that, that did nothing yeah. well but maximize profits. And, and I think, well, okay, I, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things with that that we should talk about. Yeah. Because there, there's a lot of different explanations that are floating around for why it's happening. And I think some of them are good, but I think a lot of them are missing part of the story. Yeah. And, and I think it's important because, okay, so like, like my grandma, like called me yesterday, like, like called our family to like talk about the, 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 the supply chain problem because someone had like, she'd been like fed a conspiracy theory that like the shortages were because American dock workers like didn't want to open containers from China. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Like, this I is, mean, this is not what's that's not right, but, but it, it's not like. If that had happened, it would be like, well, okay, yeah, that, that, yeah. that does scan, like, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, and I think, yeah, yeah, and like, I think this is, this is a moment where, yeah, you know, okay, think, think, things are not working how they're supposed to, and there's a lot of sort of competing stories about it, some of which are good, some of which are bad, and I think most of the conventional accounts, and Robert was talking about this, uh, you know, even the really good ones, they they start with sort of the the '80s Wall Street takeover of corporate America and the transformation of sort of all corporate management into an attempt to like raise short-term stock prices. Yeah. And you know, part of this is, is, is lean in production. And this is true. And this is sort of true, but this misses about half of the story. And, and the part of the story that it misses, that's really important. And I think is, is the sort of, it, it's, it's the broader like frame in which all of this is happening in is essentially the story of how the working class essentially loses the class war in the 60s and 70s. And weirdly, it's also a story about Foucault's boomerang, which, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You this, fucking, is, this is a, this uh, is a, this Daniel, is a long, throw long. in Throw in the, the music clip that we've all decided is going to be the one we put in whenever someone talks about Foucault's boomerang. Yeah. Which is probably just going to be another time machine noise. So re- real quick. <laughs> Foucault's boomerang noise. Uh, credit to Cody. Um, okay, continue. Brief refresher on what that is. So basically, Foucault's boomerang is that, okay, if you, if, you if, if, if a government does something like repressive, like techno- repressive technique or repressive technology, like in a colony, like in a war somewhere, eventually it'll come back and be used against like the citizens of the, that country. And yeah, you know, a, a no- great example would be fingerprinting was invented for the British, like policing um, insurgents in Malaysia and is now has come back to every you know colonizing nation now uses fingerprinting which is also deeply flawed as a technology but anyway yeah yeah and you know and and i think most people tend to think about this as armored personnel carriers but uh we'll Mm -hmm. we'll eventually get to this the the boomerang technology here is actually shipping containers hell yeah which have done like irreparable damage to the mankind all right all right i'm ready for this i don't know much about this hit me all right bear with me with this because we're 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 going to talk about two threads they're going to seem like they have nothing to do with supply chains, and then they're all going to tie together, and it turns out it's literally all supply chains. So, in the 60s and 70s, you have, you know, in, in very, very broad general strokes, you have two kinds of class war. The first kind is what I'm sort of very broadly calling the war in the factories. And this is, this is an enormous series of sort of strikes and outright uprisings that stretch from sort of Detroit to Turin to Tokyo and the, you know the mo- the most famous of these is the student sort of worker uprising in May '68 in France, and they 
you know, they're, they're, they're close enough taking the country that like French president Charles de Gaulle, like flees in a helicopter to, uh, in, in secret in Ger- it like flees to Germany in secret. And, you know, and that, 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 that's like a big event, but it sort of, it sort of fades. What doesn't fade is May 68 in Italy. And, you know, th- th- it doesn't fade there because Italy, Italy has been in the middle of a strike wave since 1962, 64. It's, the whole 60s have basically just been strike waves there. And, you know, they have their own 1968. And unlike in France where it peters out, in Italy you get the just incredibly named Hot, hot Autumn of 69 which Hell is yeah. my favorite yeah. name nice. ever for a historical nice. event. Yeah, it rules. Yeah, I'll bet it was a hot autumn. Yeah, it's it's great. And so basically what happens is you get hundreds of thousands of workers go on strike. They start seizing control of their factories. Um, and most of, most of this is playing out in, in the Fiat factories. Uh, is, yeah, these giant car factories in Italy's Industrial Triangle. And, you know, I mean, they're there for like, they're there for a long time. They're there into like 1970 and eventually they lose. But, you know, Italy is just sort of rocked by conflict and sort of class war stuff. And all of this sort of culminates in yet another enormous uprising in 1977. This one driven, like, in large part by people who are basically just like, fuck this, I'm not working in the factory anymore, it's awful. Which which I think is something that, like, you know, if, if you're looking at the modern political landscape, you have a bunch of punk people who are going like, fuck this, I'm not going to go, like, die in these factories anymore. And yeah, this, and those people all have, in in a lot of cases, uh, uh, safer employing situations than many people today. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I like, mean, it's starting to get worse <laughs> then, which is why people are are frustrated. But like, there were pensions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and and this, this is sort of interesting because there there's a kind of like, Vicky Osterweil we've had on here calls it uh it calls it like the monkey's paw thing, where it's like people in the seventies in Italy wanted like autonomy and like freedom from work. And so what, what capitalism gave them was like, oh, we'll give you autonomy. We'll just make you all contract workers. And now, like, yeah, you don't, you don't have to, like, wake up every morning and, like, go to a job in the factory and leave at five or whatever. But now you just, you know, you're, you're a contract worker, so you just have no stability whatsoever, and that, that's your autonomy. But, you know, this, this, is, this is really bad <laughs> for the Italian ruling class. Like, they almost lose control of Italy three times in ten years. And after 1977, they're just like, fuck this. And they, I mean, they, they start to start doing mass arrests. They imprison like tens of thousands of people. They torture a bunch of people. And, you know, but, but, but it becomes clear that like pure political re- repression is like not going to be enough to like just destroy the section of the working class movements that, you know, God help you thinks that you should like run production for themselves. And so they start looking elsewhere for answers. And the place they find these answers, weirdly enough, is in the second set of wars that are going on in this period, which are the, the, the sort of national liberation wars. And, you know, I mean, these are the national liberation wars. Are, these, these are full scale. Like these aren't sort of metaf- class war metaphors. These are, you know, this is this is Guinea-Bissau. This is Algeria. And, you know, importantly for, for our purposes, the U.S. fights two of them, which is Korea and Vietnam. Now. Korea and Vietnam are strategically really bad places for the U.S. to fight wars. Like, yeah. they're on the other side of the world, <laughs> which, you know, it, it makes it more difficult to do war crimes. Because, you know, if you're firebombing a village, 
right? You have to be able to move firebombs, jet fighters, and like oil mm-hmm. and rations to the other side of the world. And this is hard. As yeah, it turns it's going to be out. a lot easier when they can commit war crimes in like, I don't know, Duluth. Yeah, yeah. Well, like even even like you know, you you, you got to commit a war crime in Mexico. It's like okay, you you just send a bunch of people over the border. Oh, it'd right? be so but, easy to commit war crimes in Mexico. Yeah, we and, could and really really up our war crime quotient. Well, I we I would say this, we do do a lot of war crimes in Mexico. It's just that like yeah, they're done basically by do. proxies. That's true. Like, but I mean, yeah. we've killed like we've killed like a million people there in the last like twenty years in the war on drugs. But yeah, you know, so the U.S. You know, the U.S., okay, so it has this logistics problem, and the logistics problem is that it can't do war crimes enough. And so it comes up with a couple of solutions to them. Uh, one of them is, essentially, they, they rebuild the whole Japanese economy in order to just use Japan's industrial base to fight the war in Korea. And then after the war in Korea ends, they rebuild the South Korean economy in order to, you know, fight the war in Vietnam. And this works, but it doesn't solve the problem that, you know, okay, even, even, even if you're, you know, you're, you, you have an industrial base in Japan, right? You still need to be able to efficiently move things by sea to Korea. And, you know, you still need, there's still supplies you need to move from the U.S. And so the solution for this is containerized shipping. And containerized shipping, this is the pivot point upon which the entire history of the 20th century and everything that's happened in the 21st century hinges on like this. This is the pivot. And I, you know, like I'm not even, this isn't even really an exaggeration because it turns out that like the ability to have uniform boxes that you can stack on top of each other, like Legos and put on a ship is like, I, like it's like I, 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 comparable to the nuclear bomb in, in, in terms of how important it is. Which is a really yeah, weird we thing used to, to say. The only way to get things from A to B was a big wooden ship filled with doubloons like pile bags and stuff yeah yeah i don't know how did we like global commerce work before shipping containers what did we what did we you literally like you just like sometimes sometimes you would just like physically like people would just pick up the items and put them on the ship (laughs) or they would like sometimes they put them in boxes or like you would like strap them to like the top of the ship and so with with, with, uh, uh, trains a lot they would just like strap like machinery onto a train car and this was like not this is like really inefficient it's really slow yeah, yeah. and so the u.s in order to like do war crimes in korea and then it, you know it's just like oh hey what if we just make metal boxes and then they get they progressively get better and better at it because you know they have to go do more war crimes in in vietnam and but by the time you're getting to the end time. yeah yeah you know look lots of war crimes to do you need, you need good logistics networks to do all of these war crimes. I mean, and, it makes sense that that's where we got shipping containers, but I didn't realize, I, I had just assumed it would have come out of the shipping industry as opposed to like, we got to get more missiles over to these places. Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing. We'll get to this in a bit, but basically like a lot of the logistics revolution stuff either comes out of the military or is developed by ex-fascists. And, and and a lot of the reason for this is, okay, I mean, this is, you know, the 60s and 70s, there's still R&D happening, like, there's still actual research and development, but the military is doing an, just an enormous amount of the research and development for just all of global capitalism. And, you know, and, and the, the, the other thing that's what's happening here, and the, you know, this this is the sort of Foucault's boomerang thing, is that 
you know, so the containerized shipping logistics stuff that had been used to just like obliterate the global south suddenly starts spreading into capital, like, you know, just into like broader shipping because people look at this and they're like, oh, this is efficient. And then the contracting companies the U.S. is using. This turns into the solution to both sort of the war in the factories I was talking about in, in, in Europe and the U.S. and in like Japan itself. And then also to the solution of the national liberation movements and sort of like communism in East Asia. Because, you know, okay, so you, you have this question, right? The, the U.S., like, we kind of fight to a draw in Korea. Like, we kill an enormous number of people, but, Yeah, about know, 20% it, of the North Korean yeah, population. Yeah, and like, yeah, but we don't really win, right? Like, we, we, we can't actually defeat the Chinese army. And, or Yeah, and, and, you know, and we lose Vietnam. And so the Mm -hmm. question is, okay, so like, how how are we going to stop communism? And the answer, it turns out, is to just integrate integrate the communist countries into the capitalist supply chain. And I mean, there's a lot of examples of this. Like Margaret Thatcher, for example, is like very good buddies with Nikolai Ceausescu. Aw, that's nice. It's nice that they could be friends despite their the fact that they. well, I guess they weren't really that different as people. No, not honest. really. Like, basically, yeah. basically, the difference is that Ceausescu lost and thus got like murdered on state television, he and sure Margaret did. Thatcher he won got the and shit murdered out got a state funeral. Yeah, she should have yeah. got the Ceausescu yeah. treatment. That's yeah. my official stance. They should have Ceausescu. Yes, for stuff we will talk about in a bit. But yeah. yes, but you know the, the the archetypal example of this is actually China. And, you know, there's a lot of very sort of skilled diplomatic work by Kissinger and also the U.S. like throughout the 70s, just like they're just like sending entire factories to China. Like like they'll like they'll they'll, they'll take an entire factory, break it down, put it in boxes and then just like ship it to China. Great. At the time. And yeah, yeah so it's, so yeah, they're, they're just like sending technology to China. And mm-hmm. the end result of this is that, you know, China goes from like fighting american troops with like like doing bayonet charges like through yeah, their like own mass artillery human wave shit like yeah yeah a, against a nightmare yeah i was just like yeah to to you know being an american ally in like invading vietnam as a way mm-hmm. to like stick it to the soviets basically and so you know so the u.s essentially just integrates china into the global supply chain and they eventually they do the same thing to vietnam which Again, is another country that they, they couldn't defeat militarily, but what they, you know, what they actually beat them with is a shipping container. Yep. And before the shipping container, this would have been impossible, right? Like, basically, it was too inefficient and too expensive. Like, the, the cost of shipping was too high to have all of this production, you know, like, some half your parts made in China, some of them made in India, some of them made in, like, Japan, some of them made in Korea, and then shipped them all around the world, which is how the modern system works. But with, with containerized shipping, suddenly, shipping is really cheap. And it becomes much cheaper to pay shipping costs than it is to pay labor costs. And this is the solution to, to the sort of war in the factories. You know, if, if workers start making too much noise about pay or like, again, God forbid, start talking about like taking control of factories and running them democratically like some kind of anarchist monsters, corporations can just move the factories overseas. And this becomes an incredibly effective way to just destroy the labor movement because anytime, you know, organized labor starts making demands, you can be like, well, okay, sorry, we're just going to pack up and we're going to... You know, we're going to go to China. We're going to go to somewhere else. And this coincides with, you know, the, 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 thing, the thing that gets talked about a lot in the conventional accounts, which is the Wall Street sort of corporate takeover. Well, the, the Wall Street takeover of corporate America, which is something I think that sounds really weird to us now. But, you know, I, I, the, the, whole, the whole story here is really interesting and extremely long. And if, if you want to, like, 
have a very detailed account of, of how this all played out. Uh, the book Liquidated by Karen Ho is in, just incredible uh, like ethnography and history of, of Wall Street. She like, yeah, she's, uh, Karen Ho's an anthropologist and she like went and worked on Wall Street and like did ethnography there for a bit and is just very interesting stuff. But it's, it's kind of outside of our scope. So the, 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 the very, very, very short version is that the Wall Street bankers basically figure out a way to just like buy out corporations to like ra- raise a bunch of money and just entirely buy out corporations. And then once they have the corporation, right, what, 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 what the, you know, is, this is corporate rating. So they're, 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 they they loot all the assets, they sell it off and they try to sell off their stock at a higher price. The process of this is sort of complicated, but the, the net result of this is that Wall Street completely takes over the corporate world in a way they hadn't before. Like the, the Wall Street's, the Wall Street like finance people are now, you know, they're the, they're the people making all the decisions. And, you know, and and their their only goal is to raise the stock price. Like that's that's the only thing they care about. They they don't they don't even care about making money, right? If if you lose money and your stock price still rises, like you don't care. And those guys start looking at a lot of the things that had existed in corporations before that, things like pensions, uh, particularly things like research and development. And they look at it and go, okay, why are we spending money on R and D like this? This doesn't this doesn't raise our stock price. This doesn't have any immediate short term value. So they cut it. Right, they start cutting pensions. They start essentially just destroying the unions, and you know, and and th- because because this is happening at the same time as corporations really like get the ability to outsource for the first time, you know, they 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 lean into it and they start essentially just just slashing the amount of people who work for the company, right? And so mm-hmm. you know, and so and, and, and instead of having direct employees, they they start working with contractors and they start moving the contractors overseas, and you know, and this is this is where we get to sort of th- this whole outsourcing wave because you know something I I don't think is talked about enough with outsourcing is why actually are the labor costs lower in the countries that these people are are moving their factories to, mm-hmm. and part of it is you know people talk about development like they're moving to undeveloped countries. And you know, part of part of part of development is just you know how much technological capacity their manufacturing system has, right? And that you know, but but the other part of it is that if you move your production to say Colombia, right, or like you know you're investing in sort of like cocoa bean farming in Colombia, and people try to do union organizing, you can hire death squads to murder them. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's like it, you can basically just sort of like you you can you can outsource the violence, and you can you can you know. The, the the corporate term for it is reducing labor costs but really what you're doing is just like murdering people with death squads and terrorizing them mm-hmm. and you know that that does lower labor costs right but you know and, and i think there's there's another example of this like this is a lot of what like the killing at tiananmen was really about it was you know it, not so much in tiananmen square itself no, i've talked about this elsewhere but like the workers that they kill outside of the square like a, a lot of the reason they're doing yeah, this. I know very little about Tiananmen Square other than like protesters, China government bad. The guy stands up to tank and then yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I've, I've talked about this elsewhere more. Like the the, the the very short version is so there's a bunch of students in the square, right? And mm-hmm. the students in the square itself, like basically, they they kind of want democracy. Mostly they want like market reforms to go faster. But then outside of the square. You know, like Beijing's like whole working class shows up, 
and there's these enormous demonstrations. They 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 basically start like like barricading like blocks and blocks and blocks and like this radius outside of the street. And you get this sort of like mini commune thing, and those guys are like, you know, like they're 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 advocating for democracy in the factory. Like they're you know they're they're talking about things like like they're, they're like you know they 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 have their like marks out and they're talking about how like they're 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 calculating the rate of surplus value that's being extracted from them by the capitalists and those are the people like the, almost everyone who dies at Tiananmen is is from those guys like those are the people that they just get massacred mm-hmm. and you know and and, and the, the reason that happens is that the ccp is looking at this and is like okay this this is this is like this this is sort of this is the return of organized labor and we need to destroy it before it like gets anywhere and so they do and organized labor in china just implode i mean it it, it was already pretty weak because you have a lot of state controlled unions but i mean now it's just nothing and you know and and, and there i mean there there've been attempts to do labor organizing in china sort of recently and like yeah this is be just arrest everyone right and so you know this this is this is how you, this is this is the price of cheap labor right it's just incredible state repression but this is also you know and, and this is this is a sort of like macro scale thing of why the supply chains suck because everyone talks about like the efficiency of the supply chains but the supply chains aren't efficient they make no sense right if 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 what you're trying to do is move something quickly from point a to point b they make no sense because you know these supply chains are spread all over the world like in in indiv- individual parts are being made in six countries right you have like people will like for tax dodge purposes, like they'll have one part of a component built in one country and then they'll move it to another country to have mm-hmm. another part of it. And then they'll ship all of it to Mexico and they'll ship it across the border and they'll have the whole thing be assembled in the US so they can say it was made in the US. Like there's, there's all of these things that are just, just nonsense, right? They're, they're not, they're not efficient at all. It's, it's completely ridiculous. It's, it's this, just, you know, it's just completely absurd web. And, and the, the, the reason why it's designed like this is, as as a giant sort of counterinsurgency thing, like the 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 reason the reason the supply chains are are just bad is because they're you know they 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 they're not designed to move things. They they're designed as an instrument to just like solve the problem of of of, of class power, right? They're 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 designed to destroy unions. They're designed to make sure that nobody ever sort of like gets any ideas about wages. To make sure nobody gets any ideas about like taking anything. And so, you know, but and this 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 can work for a while. The problem is again, like they're not efficient. Like it's it just it just it is not efficient to like move, have everything made in like six countries, and then you have to assemble yeah. them somewhere else. Yeah, and so you know, in, in it's order- efficient in the sense that it efficiently maximizes the value of stock prices for like stock buybacks and stuff. And that's generally what is meant by like efficiency yeah, in yeah. that sense is like what makes the 70 people who actually own this company the most money. That's the efficient yeah. thing. But it, yeah, it's horribly it's, inefficient in every practical sense of the word. Yep. And and, and th- this is kind of an interesting change because, I mean, you know, it, this, this isn't to say that like the supply chains that worked before this were like better because they also sucked in a lot of their own ways. But all of the like efficiency stuff that we're about to talk about, like just, just in time production, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know what isn't produced just in time? Sorry. But it yeah. is an ad break time. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 not produced just in time anymore because the supply chain's falling apart. It's our sponsors. Yeah, that's that's that is our promise about our sponsors is that uh, they're they're not at all in time. Who knows when they'll get your products to you? There's no way to tell. 
it's impossible yep. to know. We're back. Yeah, we're, we're back to talk about how, you know, having having developed an entire network of extremely inefficient supply chains that just absolutely suck and don't make any sense, uh, people tried to make them efficient. And this this is where we go back to Japan, because Japan... You know, I guess this is this is this is the other Foucault's boomerang, which is that, you know, OK, so we, we, we industrialized Japan in order to like fight our colonial wars. Right. But then, you know, th- this turns into this huge like Pikachu face moment when Japan suddenly starts like industrializing more efficiently than the U.S. does. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> very funny. And then Michael yeah. Crichton writes a bunch of books that are the premise of all of them is Japan's scary. Yeah, it's, it's, very it's really funny. funny. Yeah, you know, like it's interesting. It's sort of interesting thing here, which is that like all of the panic around China, there was exactly the same panic like around Japan in the in the like the seventies and eighties. It's exactly the same, like right down to like a bunch of socialists going like, "Hey, look, this this is a model for anti capitalism." Like people people said that about the Japanese model, and it's like it's it's all it's all the same thing. It's just it's just happening again. But you know what 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 type what what Japan did and specifically what toyota does is create this thing called the toyota production system which eventually becomes known as just-in-time production and this if if you've read anything about sort of the modern supply chain problems you've almost certainly heard of just-in-time production or or lean production and just-in-time and lean production are technically different but the differences don't matter for us so yeah and and this, this stuff is derived from what toyota was sort of doing in the post-war era and basically the goal of it is you're you're never supposed to have any inventory that's just sitting there mm-hmm. so the, the whole system is supposed to be constantly the whole system is supposed to be constantly in motion so you have parts come in they get put into the immediately get put into the production line and the finished products immediately shipped out to the stores and you know the theory is that the stores are only going to carry exactly enough product to meet demand, and and it's supposed to be quote unquote flexible, which means that it can like react to shifts in consumer taste and demand by like increasing or decreasing production, and it can't do this. This is what we've been seeing for the entirety of COVID, which is that, you know, th- this this is why every time there's a run on toilet paper, everyone runs out of toilet paper because mm-hmm. it turns out that these systems can't. Even a ten percent increase just completely obliterates this entire system, and it just collapses and can't produce enough toilet paper. Yeah, and again, just because it's expensive to store things, it's pricey. This is a big part of like why actually the John Deere strike, which has the potential to disrupt the status quo more than more than any strike in in recent history, um, is so potent because John Deere tractors are kind of a necessary part of the agricultural industry, not just their ability to sell new tractors, but their ability to repair the extant tractors. Uh, like if harvest season comes around and there's not spare parts to repair tractors that break, like food doesn't get harvested. It's a yeah. significant issue. John Deere, we'll talk more about this at another date, but like not only did the most that they could do to squeeze their employees, to suck out pensions, to cut you know uh, expenditures on wages – but they they set up their factories in such a way that there was no extra space. So they could not scale up any of these factories to increase demand when they needed to. So that now that John Deere is going on strike, if they lose a month of productivity, they can't ever catch up. It's impossible because they can't actually expand the productive capacity of their factories. And the, because the strike is hitting, they didn't have any extra spare parts lying around. So yep. if shit gets broken, they can't manufacture the parts necessary to keep – 
tractors functioning in a lot of American farms because they didn't store anything because that was not the most efficient thing for the economic bottom line of the CEO who gets $160 million a year. Yeah, and, um, and this, is, anyway. this, is, this is the funny part about this whole thing, which is that, you know, okay, so this whole supply chain system was based around just like destroying destroying the organized working class, right? But it's like they, they, they were so successful at it that they've like turned around and fucked themselves with it. Because, like, you know, this, this, is, this is the thing about, about, about the John Deere strike, right? It, it used to be, you know, back, 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 if you look at, like, like how, how the unions were broken in the 80s, or, like, if you look at, like, the, the giant, like, auto strikes you'd have in the 70s, right? And, and companies still do this to this day, but, like, they're worse at it. The thing they would do is, so, okay, so you, you, you know, if you're a company, you know roughly when a strike is going to happen, right? And the, the reason you know when a strike is going to happen is because... In in the U.S., like the way labor law works is that like you you can you can basically only strike like when a contract is up. I mean, you can do wildcats, but it's illegal. But you know, okay, so they 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 knew that the auto unions, for example, were about to go were going to go on strike when when the contract like was was coming up, and you know they'd have spies, and you can get a sense of like you know, okay, so are are, are how likely are they to to do the strike and. You know, so so that 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 lets you do things like build up an enormous sort of inventory of spare parts. It, it lets you build up an, an inventory of supplies, and it lets you build up, you know, it, it, it basically it lets you build up the capacity you need to outlast the strike. But the problem with just in time is they can't do that anymore because, yeah, yeah they, they've they've you know they they've completely fucked themselves by by they, yeah. And in the John yeah. Deere situation, because they hadn't strike the workers hadn't gone on strike since eighty six. Yeah, they'd been putting funds into their strike survival fund for years but the company had nothing like has yeah um it's rad and and this is you know this this is the other part of 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 why everything like good that's happening right now is happening is that they 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 in you know that we everything has circled back around and suddenly all of these companies are you know weak are incredibly vulnerable to strikes again because yeah as you're talking about the the just-in-time production thing it only works if if everything actually comes in on time, right? Like if, if, if any, if any individual part is late, the whole system starts to fall apart and then, and then you can't repair it. And yeah, you know, and there, there, there's, there's a lot of ways that, that this, this, this can be very bad. Um, you know, we've talked about the John Deere, we've talked about the labor stuff. Uh, the other big thing that's happening is COVID, which has happened and continues to happen and has killed off just enormous parts of the working class. I mean, it's like, four million dead worldwide or something and, and again that that's also probably an undercount because that's just direct oh, yeah. that's not like yeah. yeah it's probably like twice that I mean, it's, it's i mean we're looking at a minimum of seven hundred and twenty-five thousand in the u.s and again yeah. that's probably a million undercounted at least yeah it's it's a horror show right and and the, the people they killed with that you know like it's especially in the initial phases like it was just it was just they, they, they took a chain chainsaw to the working class and those are a bunch of people who, you know, they're they're not replaceable. They're they're very highly skilled, and they do a bunch of jobs that absolutely suck. And now, you know, and one one of one of the places that this this has caused a bunch of problems is is in the ports because this, this every, the other thing that this entire supply chain relies on is being able to very quickly and cheaply move parts from you know China to the U.S., from China to Mexico, from like Bangladesh to like Somalia you you have you have you have to be able to continuously like keep moving stuff around in in you know you have to continuously keep moving ships around 
and you also have to be able to load and unload them. And we, you know, we 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 saw like there there was the the that when that ship got stuck in the Suez, there was that whole yeah, yeah that, you know that 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 was yeah a sex crisis. asses where uh where people couldn't get sex asses because the the yeah. world's supply of sex asses for months was on that one ship. Um, it was a real crisis for the sex ass community. Those are plastic asses that you have sex with. If you're curious, yeah, is <laughs> the, the the world appears as an immense collection of commodities, some of which are sex asses. <laughs> yeah, most of which, in terms of the ones that matter, are sex asses. Yes, you the know, sex yeah. ass industrial complex is really the linchpin of global capital. But please continue. Yeah, well, you know, and the sex ass industrial complex falls apart, and mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just the, the ship being stuck in the Suez like made everything way worse, right? But <laughs> and was very funny. Yeah, it was it was extremely funny. It but, was you know, extremely the, funny. The, the, the part, the thing that's like not very funny is that like, okay, so in in order to get any of this to work, right, you have to have a bunch of longshoremen who yeah. have to unload all of this shit, mm-hmm. and you know, one of one of the problems that is that is happening in in the sort of global supply chain right now is that. The ships can't be unloaded fast enough. And part of this is like this job sucks and people just a lot of people don't want to do it. A lot of people died. Yeah. And in the and it's causing this huge problem. Mm -hmm. And and there's 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 another, you know, if if you want to take like the the macro perspective about this, it's that this whole system is reliant on logistics workers. And so it also needs, you know, you need truck drivers. And we're coming back and, you know, in, in the U.S. is like, there's, yeah, you know, th- there's, there's a shortage of truck drivers now because, again, their job sucks. And they've been, like, just absolutely screwing these people over for decades and decades and decades now and turning them into subcontractors, just not paying them. And, you know, and, and this and when, you know, when the when the port shut down, like not even shut down, but like when the, when the ports are behind unloading stuff and when the trucks like that are supposed to be moving this stuff there aren't enough of them and like the the cost of that increases it it throws off the whole system and that's that's another big part of like why this whole thing is is sort of imploding and and it's interesting because i remember this there was like a decade where like every other article would be talking about how uh they were going to like automate like truck driving it was like, ah, the truck drivers are all going to go out of business because they're going to automate. It just never happened at all. And so the same thing with, with there, you know, there's, there, I mean, there's been some port automation, but like not on the scale that, you know, actually does anything. And p- part of the reason for that is, you know, I was talking about people not investing in research and developments. Yeah. So the biggest people who aren't doing that are the shipping companies. And that's a good time because the shipping co- basically like container shipping has been taken over by what's essentially just like a monopoly of two companies. And those two companies make just an indescribable amount of money. They have like a thousand percent profits and they just pay it all out as dividends. And so they're not, you know, they're not investing in any port infrastructure. They're not investing in automation. They're just pocketing the money. And that means that, you know, we have all this. And they're, like, sen- they're spending in, in the case of John Deere, which I keep going back to, a bunch of money lobbying to make it illegal for farmers to repair uh, their tractors. Yeah, yeah, they're they're you know they 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 figured they figured out that like the, the the easiest way to make money is to just get the state to shake people down for you. Mm-hmm. It's like ah eh, fuck like investing in in making anything that we have better. Let's just you know like let, let's just turn the state into a debt collector. And and it's interesting because so th- this this is the part of of the supply chain crisis that like Biden's been focusing on. But Biden's plan, Biden's plan's great. Biden's plan is literally make the longshoremen work harder. 
So his plan is, uh, and there we go. There we go. There we go. Building back better, baby. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna make we're gonna keep the ports open uh, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and like make people work weekends now. And then he also got uh, FedEx, Walmart, uh, and UPS to do twenty four hour, seven day a week shipping. So yeah, the, the solution is literally just like feed more workers into a grinder and make them work longer. Which is which is great, and and mm-hmm. you know w- will not in any way backfire. No, it's fine. I don't even yeah. think we should be talking about it. No, it's great. It's gonna. It's it's yeah. It's you know. But again, like this is the thing. Like this won't work, and like it can't. And the reason it won't work is that like part of the reason there's a shortage is that you know it, it's 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 not it's not just about the like the fact that people aren't paying enough. It's about the fact that these jobs are just awful. Like. You you have people, you have people working like twelve hour shifts that start at like six a.m. and then mm-hmm. they have to wake another twelve hour shift eight hours later, and they just keep having to do this over and over and over again. And it's well, and they like, don't like the way that these shifts are usually put on them is that like you'll find out when you come in that instead of working six a.m. to to four p.m. or whatever, they're actually going to need you to stay until eight, and then they're going to need you to come in. By the way, you're going to need to come in like two hours early tomorrow, so you realize that like in between your two shifts, you have a total of eight hours to get home and sleep. And if you say no, uh, uh, well, the idea is that if you say no, like you won't have the job, it's required. Uh, Now, the reality is that most of these companies are also pretty desperate to have these workers and a lot of these manufacturing and packing firms, it takes time to train people up and then they quit a couple of weeks in because the work is, is miserable and the schedule is fucking miserable. Um, And it's, yeah, it's all, it's, it's, it's it's simultaneously like deeply inhuman, but also is leading to a situation. There's a reason why there's so many strikes on right now is that there is opportunity because in sort of the chasing of short-term profits, a lot of these fucking oligarchs have uh, exposed themselves in a in a pretty vulnerable position. Yeah, and and I, and I think you know th- this this is coming back to a sort of. The, the the other way that when when there was a crisis in in the 60s 70s the other way they solved this was just authoritarianism right it was you know is this is the pinochet solution right like oh like workers are seizing control compromise okay we'll just shoot them mm-hmm. right and, oh, and no, this, we're out of workers yeah and yeah and this is you know they're they're finally running into a point where you know this is this is the solution they've been trying to do now with 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 this crisis is you know it they the they're relying on the fact that just the workplace is just indescribably authoritarian. I mean, it's it's like it's 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 a dictatorship on a scale that is like like even to like the most despotic absolute monarch is just like unimaginable. Like your boss gets to control like when you shit. Like they get to control when you eat. They get to control exactly what you're doing like at all times. They get to control when you do it. They get to control. Like when the next time you're going to do it is, they don't even have to tell you when it's going to be until like you show up, and you know, for the this is this is this has been the the gamble for for you know capitalism's entire existence, which is that like you just have to take this and eat shit, or they get to take away your ability to eat, get medical care, and have a place to leave to live. Mm-hmm. But that's not true anymore. Like you can just say no. You can tell them to fuck off. You can, you, you know, you can, you can, you can organize a union. You can just fucking just leave your job. Like, just leave it. 
fucking walk out. Yeah, this is why we focus, I mean, this is number one, why within the context of unions, strike funds are so important, but also why mutual aid is so important, is it, it, it potentially, when organized well enough, provides people with the option to, like, well, how are you going to feed yourself? Well, there's people in my community who want to make sure yep. that I'm fed because they believe in what I'm striking for. Um, that's yeah, the and, promise and, of all of that. That's the practical behind the kind of uh, uh, high-minded, you know, anarchist, uh, uh, just, you know, whatever, theorizing is the ability that like, well, this actually is a weapon too. Yeah, and, and I think... You know and, what else is a weapon, Chris? Our product? I, I hope we're not some, being sponsored Some by... of them. I hope we are, Chris. Yeah. Look, look I've, I've said before, for weapons, I'll read any ad... For a weapons manufacturer, as long as they send me some weapons, so come on, guys, get on it. You could, uh, you could be, you could be in the middle of this conversation, Raytheon. You know, send me a couple of missile guidance chips, Lockheed Martin. You know, you you want to give me an F thirty five? Uh, we'll uh, we'll plug you. You know, that's 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 the deal. That's how it works, baby. All right, we're back. Hopefully, hopefully you have now heard the advertisement for Knife Missile 2, Knife Missile Harder, now with like mm -hmm. five knives, a thing and that I am not I'm making up and to... actually exists. Yeah. No, people keep being surprised that the R9X is a real thing. And yeah, but there's another one. Is. There's, 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 there's one now, with yeah. more knives. They, they put more knives. Well, yeah, what are you, you're not going to, look, again, you can't, it's like with Apple products, right? For, planned obsolescence is critical. You have to, you can't just rest on your laurels. You're going to run out of money. So you got to make another knife missile with a couple of more knives. Yeah, just keep keep adding knives. Nothing can ever go wrong. Mm -hmm. Do not ask any questions about why you're developing knife but missiles. Please in the do first send place. me one. Send me one in like a drone or three. Swear to God, I'll use it for legal purposes. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the, the the last thing that I that that's really interesting about this moment that doesn't usually happen. Is that, you know, okay, so if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you, you read your very basic Marx, right, one of the things Marx talks about is that there's this thing called the Reserve Army of Labor, which is it's just like, you know, there's a bunch of people who are just always unemployed, mm -hmm. and they, 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 they get along by doing sort of like odd jobs, or like, you know, I, I, like my, my, my quintessential person for this is like, if you ever go on a subway, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's the guy selling candy bars in the subway. Yeah, right. it's people who quasi legal, you know, sometimes yeah, outright yeah. illegal. They're just kind of like doing whatever, you know. Yeah, immigrants, we call them in yep. in the West Coast. You have a lot of those, like yeah, people yeah. who trim marijuana for a couple of months and then just kind of like <laughs> crash in, you know, campsites the rest of the year, or whatever. Like, yeah. yeah, there's a bunch of those folks for sure. Yeah, and, and you know, and like the 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 number of these people who've been just like kicked out of like the formal labor system has been increasing for a long time. But what's interesting about this moment is that, you know, every every strike you see has a second strike behind it. And that strike mm -hmm. is 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 the informal general strike, which is just, again, people just quitting their jobs and leaving. And and you have this weird moment where where normally the sort of the reserve army of labor is this thing that like capitalism can always sort of rely on as a way to sort of solve its problems. Because it's like, oh, well, all right, if, if you're not gonna do this job, we can bring in another person. But you know. Th this this is a weird moment where like the reserve army of labor is like fighting on our side mm -hmm. and the, the 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 fact that all of these people are just like you know they're, they're seeing the just incredible authoritarianism of these workplaces the just horrific abuse the fact that you know they're they're being in a lot of cases just asked to show up and die 
and they're saying no is, is, is a really sort of, is a really incredibly powerful thing. And, and when, when, when you add that to the fact that, you know, all these companies have completely screwed themselves with how they design the supply chains or it's, it's all, it's all come back around and suddenly all, all the supply chain stuff that they carefully laid out over decades and decades and decades is a way to just like break the union movement and make sure nobody ever asks for more wages. You know, it's, 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 it's been revealed to be incredibly fragile and, you know, weak to our attack. And that leads us, I think, to this other tension in, in Biden's plan to sort of like revive the economy, which is that, so the U.S., technically speaking, has this like very large central planning capability, but it only has it to like build weapons. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the army has this incredible ability. Like there, there, there's we just, make like, a, certain a lot number. of bullets, you know, despite yeah, yeah. the huge stress on the bullet supply chain, it really has scaled you know the prices have increased, but uh, we're we're still 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 getting bullets. Uh, yeah. America's great at making bullets. Yeah, it's less it's, great yeah. at keeping tractors working, but yeah, that won't well, ever I, be a problem. Yeah, then you like even if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like the U.S. just couldn't produce masks. Like mm-hmm. we 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 never we never like did that, right? Like the, like the government never at any point was like we're just going to make masks and give them to people. Like they, they just never did it. And so, you know, our mass supply chain, all the supply chains suck. And the only way that like the states can intervene and get the supply chains to work is by doing one of two things. It's by either doing a thing Biden was doing, which is just go to a bunch of companies and tell them to make all of their workers work harder, which is the thing that like, you know, totally won't backfire or explode in his face. And then the second thing is for Biden basically to like, do all this saber rattling about how we have to have like medical supply chains in the U S because national defense or something. And that's the second thing he's trying to do, but you know, that just, that just makes the problem worse, right? Because once you, once you lose the ability to outsource, you, you lose the hammer you've been beating the unions with. And so, you know, all, all of the sort of, all, all, all of the tendencies that are, you know, making things like bad and scary right now are also weirdly making this you know like the 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 fact that prices are rising right the the fact that there's all these shortages it's 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 making this like the best moment to you know it's 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 making this the best moment that that anyone's had in ages to actually try to make something better yeah and 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 the important thing is we're we're starting to see it happen, and yeah, and we're 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 going to talk more about Striketober and sort of the strike wave in the coming, you know, weeks and months. But yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be hitting this pretty hard even just next week. Um, we have a yeah. lot of stuff in the pipeline. Kind of wish we'd gotten to it earlier, but there's a lot of stuff to talk about in the world yeah. happening that that's within our milieu. It turns out when you're when you're specific focus is things falling apart uh you're always behind on covering all of the things that are falling yep. apart <laughs> but i think it is a good time to 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 drive this to a close to drag this episode out behind the farm the barn and 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 shoot it and bury it in a shallow grave and and break its bones with a hammer so that the police can't identify it chris um thank you for for putting this together uh got anything anything else to say uh, quit your job, and you or you and or unionize your workplace and or take it over and run it yourselves because Lord knows the people who are telling you what to do just 
literally do not care if you die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, with, with that, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I was just gonna, uh, 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 I don't know what I was gonna do, Chris. I, I don't know <laughs> what I was gonna do. Do, do, go, go do something. You know, you're, you're yeah. listening to things. Go do something. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and if you want to listen to us do more things, we are allegedly, allegedly, we, we, we are at Cool Zone Media on, on the Twitter and, and the Instagram. You can't prove that in court. It's true. Good luck. Good luck to them trying to prove that we did this. Yeah, that's right, motherfuckers. All right. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER this is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Ah. Excellent this is... work, Chris. That's good. That's good. That's the kind of atonal grunting that people have come to expect from the introductions of my podcasts. I was, I was hoping it wouldn't be that, but then it was so bad that it was great. No, Sophie. Like, I love it. Our, uh... I'm thrilled. <laughs> that's our brand now. It can't be anything else. We've we've established it. Look, nobody else is doing that. The Come Town guys, I assume, aren't atonally grunting to start their podcast. I don't know, actually, but I assume not. <laughs> what is this, this podcast, is, Chris? I guess th- this, is, this is just how Who we start. We? It could happen here. Is a podcast. Is that true? You don't sound like you believe it. Enthusiastically, Chris, with feeling. <laughs> this is a podcast. Damn about right things it is. happening here. That's it's about right, things falling apart. Yeah, excellent. That's how we do it. Okay, what are we talking about today? Well, one of the things that is happening here, as we have discussed briefly in previous episodes, is a bunch of strikes. Yep. And yeah. with us today to talk about one of these strikes, specifically the Kellogg strike, is Mel Buer, an independent researcher, educator, and freelance journalist based in Omaha, Nebraska, where this particular strike is taking place, who has done, done a lot of journalism previously on the, the local sort of protests and uprisings in 2020 and is also researching and writing a book on alternative media. Hi. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> strikes. Strikes apparently is what's up. It is it is striketober. We're doing strikes. Strike wave, baby. Yee. Yee. So this this specific strike, um why don't can you can you walk us through a bit about how we got to the point where this Kellogg's factory is on strike? Um, well, first off, it's f- four plants. It's all four American Kellogg cereal plants have gone on strike. Um, the workers in these plants are represented by the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union. I do love oh. that bakeries and tobacco workers are in the same union. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yep. that's rad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, um, their contract was up for renegotiation in 2020, actually. Um, and um, due to a series of weird things happening, they pushed the negotiations to 2021. Um, they renegotiate their contract every five years. Um, and at stake this year um, was a uh, sort of pushing back against a recently introduced two-tier employment system that the company sort of strong-armed the union into in 2015, which essentially uh, is not, it's not a good deal for anyone. Um, in 2015, they pushed in this sort of two-tier system where one tier is a lower transitional tier and one tier is a legacy or full-time employee tier. Um, and what it is is, you know, it amounts to a difference of 12 bucks an hour and less Jesus. benefits. Yeah, that's um, significant. Yes, yes. Um, 
Dan Osborne recently did an interview with Max Alvarez at Working People Podcast, and he really kind of talked about exactly what was going on there. Um, and, you know, there's 1,400 people who work in four plants. There's about 480 employees at uh, the Omaha plant, which has been around for decades. And um, essentially what this tier system does is it's capped at 30% of their union workforce. And the whole idea is as these full-time employees retire or quit, then these transitional employees will sort of be funneled into the full-time tier, right? Uh, Over the last five years, it hasn't really happened, really, at all. Um, It was a bad deal from the start, according to many of the workers who sort of felt like they, you know, they were backed into a wall because Kellogg's was threatening to close the Memphis plant if they didn't ratify this negotiated contract. So rather than experience, you know, 500 layoffs in Memphis, they just agreed to it. So they knew going to the negotiating table in 2021 and 2020 um, that they were going to try and sort of walk that back Um, because these workers all work in the same plant, same days, first, second, third shift. Transitional workers are working side by side with these full-time employees, working the same hours, which can amount to seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day on mandatory overtime. And they are making $12 an hour less, and they are not getting the uh, benefits that these full-time employees are getting. So really, these full-time employees are kind of going to bat for the transitional employees. Um, Kellogg's wants to remove the cap, which the union negotiated, which is at 30% of their workforce. They want to t- do that, do away with that so that they can continue hiring more transitional workers. And uh, they, they want to fuck with the uh, insurance benefits. So uh, the union tried to negotiate this. I think, uh, according to the local union president, Kellogg's negotiators were at the negotiating table for 10 hours and they negotiated eight hours a day, five days a week for two weeks, 10 hours. They were at the table. So they weren't interested in negotiating a contract. They had laid out their, their terms and they essentially told the union to go kick rocks. And so the union said, you know, we have, we have until October 5th, and then our contract is up, and if we haven't ratified a new contract, then we're going out on strike, and that's ultimately what happened. So they've been on strike for, this will be their 14th day today. I think the the fight against the two-tier system, I think, is an interesting part of this, because that's been a huge part of a lot of the different uh, strikes we've been seeing. This has been the John Deere strikes, this is part of the Kaiser strikes. And yeah, I'm wondering what, what you think specifically about the fact that this is like th- this is the moment that people have decided to like push back against against two or even three tier systems that were introduced in the last really like 10 or 15 years for the most part well i think it's just you know it's a divide and conquer strategy for kellogg's or for these other companies and ultimately what it looks like is it uh destabilizes uh well established unions especially at kellogg's um and um it pits workers against each other you know, um, particularly at Kellogg's, if they are able to remove this cap on this tier system, um, what they're essentially doing is they're creating a more precarious workplace uh, for these workers. Um, the turnover rate in the lower tier at the Omaha plant is right around 40%. Wow. Um, and, you know, prior to 2015, you didn't really see a whole lot of people leaving the Kellogg's plant. You know, these were these are workers who are 
spending their entire careers at this plant. Their parents work there. Their grandparents work there. You know, um, they because they're all getting paid around the same amount of money, there isn't this tension on the, the line. So they're, they're working with each other. They're helping each other, right? Um, and with this tier system, what they're doing is they're throwing these newer workers into uh, pretty uh, insane factory conditions um, and making it really difficult for them to uh, feel like they have any reason to stay there, right? A lot of these people will, you know, put in – some of these workers were transitional workers who weren't officially hired by the company, you know, that aren't full-time employees. They aren't receiving benefits like the full-time employees are. For five years, they work this every day, seven days a week, three months on end, right? Uh, they have this really, you know, punitive attendance-based point system that discourages you calling in sick. There's injuries that happen in the factory all the time. You know, I went out to the line and and wrote a piece for – the real news about this and pretty much every person I talked to showed me scars from accidents that happened, injuries in the plant. Um, The union president himself got his hand stuck in a, um, like a a mill and broke all the fingers in his hand. He had to have 10 surgeries on his hand, you know, Jesus Christ. Um, There was an accident at the plant two or three weeks ago where a a transitional employee got both arms stuck in a conveyor belt, you know? Um, The thing is, is these folks super proud of the work that they do. Like absolutely a hundred percent take this work extremely seriously. You know, they're not even asking for changes to their overtime. They are not asking for, you know, anything that, you know, from me on the outside, I'd be fighting for more humane working conditions. But to them, you know, it's it's not like it's a point of pride, but they feel that they have put blood, sweat, tears, uh, you know, uh, fractured relationships, time that they could be spending with their children into this factory. And Kellogg's is essentially fucking them over. Yeah. You know, they see it as we have sacrificed for this company for years and years and years. Um, and we are asking for equal pay for all and for everyone to have the same health care so that we can do this job, you know. And Kellogg's is saying no, absolutely, you know. I think um, the union president said that the, some of the negotiators called those demands outlandish during negotiations, which I think is just incredible, you know, just corporate greed. Yeah, and I think the, the other part of the story is that, like, I mean— it, it's kind of a weird consequence of it, but like one of the things, one of the consequences of sort of like rising, uh, like staple commodity prices, like staple grain prices and stuff is that Kellogg's like, they're doing, they have like record, they have record profits right now. Oh yeah. And they, they're still just oh, yeah. doing this shit because. Yeah. They made just, record profits during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, they gave their CEO, uh, a pretty hefty raise bonus. Um, there was a stock buyback, uh, program that helped happened among the C-suite folks last year. They made a lot of money, a lot of money. And, um, you know, these workers worked every day through the pandemic, um, continually understaffed, you know, um, doing their best. Um, because, again, they they take this job very seriously and they are proud that they are feeding the American people, you know, um, and they are proud to work at Kellogg's. And uh, they feel that this contract is just shit. It's just shit. And... 
you know, the only sensible thing to do is to to walk out on strike because, you know, they've been backed into a corner and negotiations have stagnated completely, you know. Um, and um, they don't want to, they don't want to back down from this, you know. Um, they, and I agree. I feel what they're, what they're asking for is fair. It's very fair. I mean, I um, think it's, I, yeah. <laughs> I think asking for a lot more would be fair, but that's right. not, uh, not my place to be doing. <laughs> One of the things that strikes me about this, you talk about this tier system that Kellogg's introduced, which I, I can't help but think of what happened at John Deere, where mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, I think in 96, cut pensions by two thirds and then like last year eliminated them entirely in this kind of bid to pit chunks of the workforce against each other, um, where you have like, you know, different groups making different amounts and sort of like, I don't know, it, it seems kind of like the strategy that you see in the broader economy, like within within a, the, the space of a company where you've got like some people who are getting pretty well taken care of in their jobs and other newer people who are uh, who are getting more screwed over in kind of this this attempt to um, create division within the workforce so that this this kind of organizing doesn't happen. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. And you also have to think, you know, if they are able to remove this cap on the transitional tier, but that means that there's, they'll be able to, instead of, say, say a full-time employee retires, they leave that space empty, but they still need an extra space, uh, an extra person, right? So they can just hire a transitional worker instead of funneling one of those transitional workers into that full-time space, Uh what ends up happening is suddenly you have instead of seventy percent full time to thirty percent transitional, the it starts tipping, right? It becomes a more precarious workforce. Then, say for example, they do that in the next five years. You know, now they have seventy percent of these transitional workers who don't think the union is offering anything for them. They can essentially just offer a better deal to these transitional workers and kick the union out of the company at some point. You know. Um, and these folks on the line understand that and know that that's kind of Kellogg's plan, right? Yeah. They know that the Kellogg's what Kellogg's is trying to do is essentially destabilize the power of the union inside the plants. And everyone on the line that I've spoken with know exactly what's happening, you know. And these full time employees are out there every day, making sure that their transitional, you know, colleagues know that that's why they're out there because they they want to not allow this to be something that divides their workforce. It remains to be seen what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. They've, they've brought in scabs to get the plant up and running again. And most recently, uh, yesterday, this morning, yesterday, uh, the Building and Construction Trades Council Union met with the union president in Omaha uh, because they have about 100 third-party iron workers, carpenters, electricians, and skilled tradespeople that are union tradespeople that uh, have contracts at Kellogg's. And they came to what Dan Osborne, the union president, decided called was a tough decision that those union workers are going to cross the picket line to honor those contracts. So Kellogg's is forcing the unions in the city in like into a bind really because they're they're you know uh gonna lose their own contracts at kellogg's so that's kind of been like the most recent development here is that rather than just temps 
coming in. We have now skilled union tradespeople from various Omaha unions who are also crossing the picket line to honor their contracts at Kellogg's, you know, um, past these striking workers. So it's a bit of a mess, a little bit, you know. Yeah. There's so much going on right now. I'm I'm kind of wondering what you think are the because uh, we we've got a a number of strikes kind of all coming to a head at the same time. I'm wondering specifically from the Kellogg strike, what do you think are kind of the lessons that should be taken from what's happened so far for the the broader labor movement? Um, I think the biggest thing that's kind of impacted me as I've gone to the line, um, I've stood on the picket line, I've covered these, you know, this strike, I've talked to people, um, is that. When these types of actions happen, they really only can be sustained because the community comes together to support them. You know, um, these strike funds that are going around and folks showing up to stand on the picket line who are not part of the union are really sort of become, you know, they are helping support these workers who can only hold out so long with finite resources, right? So the big thing to me is that past these news cycles of excitement of striketober of you know these people just walked out today well they may you know they may be on the line for months and months on end and the news cycle is going to move on and these communities are still going to have to try and 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 back up these labor actions right um you really can't have a true you know you can't have a labor movement without you know support right um, and that's kind of been the biggest thing that has impacted me, particularly, you know, this Omaha used to be a really formidable union town, you mm-hmm. know, um, back in the eighties, it was really, really something to see that the business unions in, in the various locals here really had, some of these union leaders had more political power than the mayor. Right. Um, and that has gone downhill over the last 40 years. And it's really cool to see, uh, the the level of solidarity that's happening amongst the community, you know, um, and the ways in which people are kind of coming out to talk to and, and be a part of this strike and to remind these Kellogg's workers that they're not operating in a bubble, you know, and that the rest of the community really hopes that the strike will end quickly and peacefully and with a really good resolution for these workers, you know. One, one other thing I wanted to ask about in, in, in terms of sort of this this kind of research into the union movements and in 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 terms of sort of community support is the level of violence that there's been against uh like against these strikes like I've seen a lot of like of stuff about people getting hit by buses and like I, I don't I don't know if the, I, I think I think I'm getting my strikes I don't I don't know though if they've been direct car attacks on this specific picket line but that's been a thing that it's been happening a lot, and I was wondering a couple of documented cases. You know, yeah, yeah, strikes. and yeah, I was wondering what you think about that, and like what actually can be done about the fact that, like, you know, like, that you know, like this, just the fact that we're just seeing auto attacks on picket lines just regularly now. I mean, that's you know, it's a it's a shitty development. You know, um, I was out on the picket line last Thursday and um, they were attempting to bring in buses at shift change past the the picketers who 
walk slowly. You know, they don't stop in front of the bus. It's illegal to stop and, and you know, make it, you know, so that they can't pass through the gates. But they slow them down for a little bit. And um, one gentleman was trying, you know, was standing there and this bus just bumped right into him. You know, there's videos that have been shared uh, through local news of buses knocking down workers as they're trying to cross the picket line. Um, and I, you know, there are also like personal vehicles that go through and it could be the private security that's been hired. It could be uh, managers. Um, but, you know, they're running through these lines really quickly, dangerously. Uh, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I, I don't have an answer for what the best uh, solution for that is, you know, but vehicle attacks have become sort of more, uh, I don't want to say commonplace, but you see them happening a lot, um, both at protests last year and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I think Warrior Met Cole had some <laughs> bosses yeah. running through the lines and, and being reckless with their vehicles, you know, um, the problem is, is on the on the back end, the police don't step in when they see these instances, you know. Um, and in fact, last Thursday, when we had a uh, hundred plus motorcyclists from various MCs uh, show up to support the strike, um, the police were the ones who uh, protected the scabs and made sure that they made it through the picket line. So, you know, um, the answer to that, not sure. You know, yeah, I mean uh, that's a time-honored police tradition. Yeah, <laughs> they uh, they yeah. historically don't don't exist to protect laborers, uh, with the notable exception of uh, of uh, the 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 sheriff in uh, what was it Matawan in uh, during the uh, um, the coal miner strike in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they shot him. So, <laughs> well, yeah, but Rich. he shot some people first. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Sid Hatfield, that was the name. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've gotten to know some of these folks on the line over the last two weeks, and they're just fantastic human beings, you know. Um, They are accommodating and hardworking, and they come from all age brackets, and they bring their families out, and, um, you know, they're getting getting a raw deal from Kellogg's. And um, so far, the community support has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, There hasn't really been, like, at the John Deere strike, they're not getting eggs thrown at them, you know. Um, they get a lot more, uh, honking and messages of support than they do, uh, people driving by to yell at them for, uh, you know, being on strike. So that's been nice to see, you know, um, and actually this weekend on Saturday, um, there's going to be a like cool vintage car show cruise around Kellogg's event that they've got planned. <laughs> the fire department's bringing rigs and um, teamsters are- the fire department. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the teamsters are bringing cars and the, there's a bunch of vintage car clubs that are going to be coming out. So, you know, th- those types of things have like really kind of like fired up these people to keep them out on the line as long as they need to be, you know. So community's there for them. Uh, one of the things I'm continuing to wonder about is what it takes to close the gap between- Understanding that you and your colleagues are getting screwed over by this system and understanding that you and all of the other people striking at the same time and perhaps even a bunch of people not striking are all kind of fighting the same fight and that maybe there's 
uh, grander things to achieve than uh, the negotiation of a single contract. Because that seems like the big leap that uh, is going to be the real struggle to clear. Uh, I Yeah, you know, um, I will say that some of the workers are fully aware that this is not just about a single contract negotiation and is actually, you know, more about struggles of the working class against corporate greed and uh, the ways in which the working class gets their asses handed to them all the time. Um, um, and they know that. They know that at some point, perhaps at some point in the future, someone else is going to look at their example and be inspired by it, right? Um, as far as like maybe, I don't know, ideologically speaking or politically speaking, for these folks, it uh, doesn't fit into any sort of ideology leftist or conservative or whatever everyone's got their own personal politics but they don't really talk about it on the line what they talk about is working class versus ruling class um that you know that's their sense it's corporate greed it's um asshole ceos making 11.6 million dollars a year while they're struggling to pay their own bills you know um yeah and and uh, you know that conversation is more common than um trying to fit this into a larger political movement or revolutionary movement, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Um, but I would say that the vast majority of the workers, regardless of their own personal politics, have a very clear sense of where they sit in terms of class consciousness and understand that this is one of, one of the uh, most effective tactics to try and, and force the hand of these assholes, you know, um, is to withhold work and withhold their labor. So, well, this has been great. I mean, that's everything I had to ask, Chris. Anything else? Not that, not that I have. So, is there a is there a call to action we could have yeah. for our listeners or pages people should be following? A strike fund. Yeah, yeah, like that. yeah. There's a GoFundMe and there's a PayPal set up for the Omaha strikers. I believe the BCTGM uh, International page has like a page of each of the strike funds for each of the four plants. So that might be something that you might want to share with your listeners. I can send you an email with that um, because it's probably going to be easier to do. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, BCTGM isn't called for an official boycott of Kellogg's products. However, they wouldn't be mad if you just didn't buy any right now. There was some talk last week that some of the picketers might, you know, be flyering outside of grocery stores to try and educate the community on what's going on with this strike. But beyond that, they also are concerned about the quality of the food being produced by scabs. So it probably would be healthy for you to not <laughs> buy the food, you know, because uh, I think it was in, what, 2018 during a works uh, a lockout in Memphis, the same company that they brought in then that they're bringing in now, uh, pissed in the cereal on the line. And they Jesus. didn't release video of that for two years after the incident. So it ended up in someone's home. You know, gross. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes, yeah. That is uh, some, I mean, I guess that's some scab shit, but that's some scab damn, even shit. by scab yeah. standards. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fucked, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, uh, support your local strike fund. And if you are in a city where Kellogg's plant is striking, I'm sure those workers would love, love to, to hear from you, feel your support. So. And yeah. where, and where can our listeners follow you? I am on Twitter primarily at cold brood tool. I don't know why I picked that name, but 
But I, I like it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I got. <laughs> I uh, haven't changed that handle since I got on t- Twitter. So, um, but yeah, that's usually where I'm at. Uh, otherwise, you know, I teach locally and and have a podcast that I'm developing and and do a bunch of different projects. So Twitter's the best way to get a hold of me if you have questions. Awesome. All right. Thanks for having me on, folks. Thanks I appreciate for talking it. to us, Mel. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. I'll be back at the picket line, you know, talking to these folks and um gonna do my best to keep this shit in the news cycle so that they aren't forgotten. So awesome. We've got a link to the strike fund and some other ways to help in the description. So yeah, this has been a Could Happen Here Pod. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram at Happened Here Pod and at Coolzone Media for all the rest of our shows. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, your favorite podcaster, also legally the only podcaster that that people are allowed to enjoy on the internet, here to introduce uh, a really exciting episode of It Could Happen Here. So for the last bit of time, uh, I've been in and out of touch with a number of members of the Puget Sound John Brown Club. They have provided uh, armed self-defense groups for a couple of different protests uh, in the Washington area over the last year and change. Um, and we wanted to sit down and talk to them about the ideas behind community self-defense, how to do it responsibly, how to do it irresponsibly. We also had some discussions with them uh, about the disasters that happened at the CHOP slash CHAZ last year. They were not involved with that as an organization, um, but they have some insights on the matter. Um, that's going to be coming at you in a separate episode or maybe even a couple of episodes in the near future. Today, we're just kind of talking about the concepts of armed community self-defense, you know, what's responsible, what's irresponsible, how people should think about it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Here it is. A decent chunk of the folks listening, especially the Portlanders, will have experience with uh, and that, that Garrison and I have certainly had experience with it is people at protests declaring themselves security, sometimes even wearing shirts that say security, and uh, picking up a variety of weapons, often paintball guns and mace, and using them often irresponsibly on other protesters, on, on bystanders, uh, in the name of, of, of keeping things safe. And um, I think we're pretty clear, and I think most reasonable people can see that that's not community self-defense, but often those people... Uh, certainly claim that what they're doing is community self-defense. Um, and I, I'm specifically wanting to start by getting a, kind of a range of definitions from folks, as you are all people who have engaged in community self-defense, um, and particularly armed community self-defense. What do you see as the actual role of community self-defense, and, and how should it look as opposed to, you know, a guy with a paintball gun yelling at kids for tagging a window? Uh, Ray, you want to you wanna kick us off with an answer there? I do. Community defense should be part of the, a broad health and safety infrastructure set up for a protest movement or a community. I'm being deliberately vague here, but specifically armed community defense deals with mitigating uh, lethal and egregious harm to members of a community. The goal is forced and foremost prevention, mitigation, and control of those threats. In my mind, ideally, community defense would involve no one doing anything, carrying around a bunch of really heavy shit and nothing happening, but deterring those from harming others. And in the absolute worst case, it means you have to actually do something that can get messy pretty quickly. I want to circle back to a couple of things. Actually, I do have one, one quick follow-up question for you before we move on to the next people, Ray. When you say like carrying heavy things and, and whatnot, I'm wondering like what do you think? I, I, I'm interested in you, and I'll probably ask other people this follow up. When it when it comes to carrying bringing a firearm to either a protest situation or some other community self defense situation, what is going through your head when you determine what to bring? Because I, I've seen people carry a variety of different guns, from like shotguns and in one case is a Mosin Nagant to ARs or handguns. 
Um, what do you think is kind of the, the, the logic train, I guess, that you would take and like, what is the appropriate tool to bring like in this situation? So that depends entirely on what the anticipated threat is and how one plans to mitigate the anticipated threat. There's no correct answer for that. Sometimes the answer to mitigate lethal or egregious bodily harm is not a firearm at all. Indeed, mm -hmm. firearms are applicable in an extraordinarily narrow range of scenarios, but those range of scenarios are catastrophic and need extreme measures to be mitigated. So it depends on what if you are considering bringing a firearm, what is the firearm good at? And then you get into the minutia of what firearms good for what thing, which depends on your legal context and particular threat. But I think one has to start with the question is, is the thing I'm bringing able to mitigate the type of harm I might see happen to my community? And to get a little bit less vague, there are people who think that bringing a shotgun is a good way to stop a car speeding into a crowd when it clearly isn't, right? Mm -hmm. So one has to make sure that the tool, whatever they have, is is appropriate for the task at hand and the the threat you anticipate. Ah, oh, that was great. Thank you, Ray. Um, KD, you wanna you wanna give us your answer next? I, I agree with everything that Ray said, and the only addition that I'd make is that um, it specifically in our in our cases generally doesn't mean standing between protesters and police but more guiding protesters, you know, or activists or, or participants away from potential situations of harm. It's like, we can't stand in front of police and stop cops from doing their job. Like that just gets you arrested and, uh, or worse or worse. And that's yeah. not what we're here for. So, yeah, that's yeah, all I want to add. Could you, cause I, I have chatted with a couple of your number about this, about, um, kind of the the role that that an armed contingent at a protest can play in kind of allowing an avenue of retreat, you know, especially during confrontations with non-state actors. Um, I, I'm interested in kind of what you, um, you know, you're not you're not to kind of as you did kind of kind of clarify a misconception. You don't see your role as standing in front of the protesters between them and the cops and like presenting a threat to the cops. What is the utility in kind of an active protest situation that you've seen of of, of what y'all do? So I, that's a good question. And um, if we're doing our job well, then most people think we don't do anything at all. Um, a lot of what we do is we're, we're watching external potential threats who might try to come in. The most common factor these days is a car. Mm -hmm. um, but generally we're, we're looking for folks that might cause trouble and finding, ensuring that we're not putting ourselves in a position where we're going to get cornered or trapped and, and really, you know, just trying to help facilitate and work with the facilitators and organizers to keep things, you know, progressing in a safe way. So as far as what we're protecting against threat wise, that, that ranges from everything from like angry people who are just angry and trying to go home and getting blocked by a protest to people who are, who are actively looking to do harm to a, a, a movement that happens to be involved in the protest, or, you know, maybe it's something as, as, as specific as a person who's looking to specifically do harm to uh, uh, organizers. So most of the time it's, we're, we're focused outward and, and just making sure that our exits are, are covered and that we have ways to get people away from potential bad situations. Um, but that was great. Thank you, Katie. Uh, Shannon, you want to give your answer next? 
Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, I would add there's a really critical element to community defense that begins and ends with the word community. Obviously, there's a big difference between proclaiming yourself security and showing up someplace and being there as an intentional community support where the community plays a role in you being there and also has some influence on that question of what are you carrying and what is the response? So I think it's just really important that you keep the community aspect at, at the forefront and that's a huge part of our collective work is making sure that when we're providing uh, community defense, we're aligning ourselves with the desires of the community group that has asked us to be there, also filtering it through our judgment as to what's safe and appropriate under the circumstances using some of those filters that Ray mentioned uh, when they were answering. And um, what do you see is like, like this is something that I kind of gets to both what, what is an issue with me and kind of the folks who declare themselves as security, which is that they're often kind of separating themselves from the rest of the movement, specifically in a cop-like way to say like, well, it's my job to keep you safe, even if that means, or it's my job to keep things orderly, even if that means attacking some other people at this protest. One of the things that Scott Crow in his uh, in setting sites, which is a, a really good book on community self defense, does is set out that um, a, a key aspect of community self defense, as you said, is that you're like a member of the community, and and I think I guess the question I have is because guns are what they are and have the kind of cultural weight that they have. It's you you people are always people who accept being armed as an aspect of their personality are always going to be kind of fighting having that dominate their personality. And it, it, it wouldn't, it, it, it's clearly something that a lot of people have an issue with. The thing that is important is to be a member of the community who happens to be armed, as opposed to an armed activist whose, whose role is being armed, right? Like, I, I, I mean, do you agree with what I'm saying? Or kind of like, I'm wondering how you think about it, because this is something that I'm kind of going around in my head about as well because it's 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 clearly where a lot of the problems happen right that the gun becomes central to the identity of the people who bring it which is something that happens to the cops yes and also the mentality of separating yourself from the community and mm -hmm. not being part of the purpose of being there and so i'll defer to my my uh, comrades here to go a little bit further with it but i would just say that there's a significant difference between armed community defense and having an intentional presence of armed community defense at an event or a protest and being a person who shows up with a gun. Those are two really different things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, the, that's one of the benefits of being part of an organization that does this collectively with accountability, with training, with a, a known role in the community so that there is um, consistency among what we do and why we do it, and a history of folks understanding that if we're present somewhere, it's because we've been asked to be there, and that what we're doing there is aligned with and approved of by the people who are 
organizing the event. And then I'll, I'll let somebody else who's more eloquent than I am uh, answer that further if they feel like they can. Yeah, I think uh, Nova is up now if you wanted to give your answer and kind of also comment on what we've been chatting about, what Shannon and I were just chatting about, Nova. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I, I, I would say that uh, folks like Ray and Katie and, of course, Shannon really put it very succinctly, very well together and answered a lot of the things that I was going to already provided things that I was going to add to it. But um, the, the, the specifically the part about the gun becoming the driving factor in somebody's presence at a protest or the gun being a part of the personality of somebody who's going to appoint themselves as a guardian towards a bunch of people. I would, I, I would say that with any responsible community community defense role within a protest context that the act of being a body in between a threat and your community uh has to come first and that the that the firearm has to be secondary um there there was an incident on the uh 300th night of protest where uh many of us were at risk of being harmed by a vehicle attack and uh, in retrospect, a firearm would not have mitigated that threat terribly well, but the idea of being in between a threat such as that and somebody else who is pro- possibly more vulnerable than you are bore a lot more of a significance on that. So uh, the firearm being there to respond to a threat and perhaps mitigate an active ongoing deadly threat to your community is one thing. Uh, but I think the primary thing is going to be just putting yourself in harm's way so that you can spare that responsibility from somebody possibly more vulnerable than you, if that makes sense. That should be the primary responsibility. And, um, how do you avoid letting that turn people doing that into feeling like a separate an even elevated chunk of, of the community, because that, again, that's what happens with police. You know, this idea that it starts as like, well, we're here to serve and protect. Um, and that, that through a variety of toxic alchemies turns into this idea of the thin blue line. What is the way you push back on that? How do you actually stop it from going from, I'm someone who is accepting personal responsibility for the well-being of the people around me um, and putting my body in between them on harm's way, if necessary, uh, to I, it's my job to protect people to, it's my job to, you know, from turning that into kind of this idea of, I think, stewardship in some ways that like some people in law enforcement have, where like you're there, they, they get to tell you what to do because that's their responsibility to keep you safe. Like, how do you, how do you stop that attitude from evolving? Cause I, I've seen it happen to people fairly quickly when they put themselves in some of these situations sometimes. And it's certainly not like most people, but it is, it doesn't take a long time for somebody to like, especially if they're vulnerable to to get in that position. So how do you, especially if you're approaching it from an organizational standpoint, right? You're an organization uh, made up of people who come to do this. How do you fight back against that? Like what is the active kind of counter programming, if you will? I'd say uh, I, I don't have an easy answer for that question, uh, to be completely honest with you, but I'd say that the closest thing uh, to an answer to that would be that an almost you know monastic devotion to the task that was asked of you 
by the group that asked you there. Um, so if somebody uh, asks us to be a part of a march and to simply look outward for external threats and uh, to be willing to respond to those threats if need be, again, putting our bodies in harm's way, but also be willing to respond to lethal force in kind uh, should the worst case scenario arise. Um, I, I, I'd say that the ultimate accountability rests with the people who asked you to be there. Uh, and. The, the, there's no easy answer as to what that mechanism of accountability looks like. Uh, but, I, you know, in several layers, that would start with your teammates, the people who are part of your organization that asked you to be, that uh, is asked to be there. So uh, other members uh, of, of JBGC uh, are, you know, uh, definitely going to try and keep each other accountable. Uh, but it's also the uh, larger the, 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 the larger contingent of the action that you're a part of uh, to be ultimately willing to back down from whatever you're doing if uh, a concern is voiced by that community. And I, 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 I wish I had a better way to word that, uh, but just the, 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 the constant vigilance within oneself against overstepping the boundaries that were clearly set by people who invited you into a space. Um, that's really the best answer I can give for that at the moment without further percolating. Well, I mean, yeah, for, for one thing, I think this is the reason we're having this conversation and I'm, I'm getting ahead of us a little is because uh, this is still very much a developing thing on the left. And, and I don't think anybody has all the answers on how to do it well, although I think an increasing number of folks accept the necessity. Um, so I think that's part of the reason for the conversation is this like continuing exploration of how to actually do this responsibly. Um, but I do think you hit on something important there when you talked about the that you're there at the invitation of a community as opposed to you are there to to police or to maintain order. Like the idea of Approaching it as if you're a guest strikes me as a really good idea um, in order to to keep yourself on a certain behavioral um, standpoint. Like I'm 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 here at the request of this community as their guest, as opposed to I am here to protect this community. You know. Uh, absolutely. I, that's a that's a that's a perfect way to summarize what I was trying to go for uh, with that one. Uh, I think that the ultimately uh, to be averse to being put in a position of power or authority is the best way to check against that. Um, and to simply be a servant to the community that is, uh, again, inviting you into that space uh, and putting yourself in a, um, <sighs> servile is not the right word. I'm looking for a different word for that, but a, 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 a position of service. Uh, a true position, like like I, yes. Uh, what 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 community defense should be is ultimately a service and a burden rather than a reward of responsibility and power over your fellow community members. Okay, yeah, great. I think next was Ray again. Um, you had something to say there. Yeah, to finish that thought, in my notes, I did a section of what happens when things go right. I think one thing that can go right is normalizing that firearms are just a 
thing that can be around and they don't have to be your entire ass personality, nor do they have to be a differentiating factor. Indeed, I think one of the successes, there are not many, but of a uh, community defense in the chop was normalizing the idea that people can have firearms and they're not an inherent threat. I'm um, thinking of people who were armed often and were pointed out routinely. And it was like, nah, he's chill. He's, he's a cool dude. You know, just a guy, just like, I think it's like, you know, do you really think the black guy is going to shoot up the chop? I don't know that he's, he's totally fine. I know him. His jokes are great. Um, again, overhearing these kind of conversations, it, it helps, you know, firearms become like part of the tapestry of life, not this differentiating factor, not a beauty item, not something to wrap your personality around. It's just like, they're there and they, they, they can be good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent. And I think that normalizing effect is one of the successes community defense can have. And I'm happy to talk about other things that community defense can normalize, but I wanted to emphasize the, you just have a firearm. You're not talking about it. You're not touching it. You're not thinking about it. You know, people have that. It's just around. And it became pretty chill. And there is kind of at the chop specifically, there's an area where firearms just kind of were around and nothing happened really. And, and it, that was kind of wonderful in my mind. So um, uh, from my experience with uh, with the club, uh, uh, it's basically like, even though we are the John Brown Gun Club, the guns are like the last thing that we even consider. Like uh, it would technically, if we were to actually rename the club, it would be the John Brown De-Escalation Club. Um, we would like most of the time, uh, any, um, any, anything that's gone on, even uh, when I did visit the chop and there was some weird stuff going on, uh, like Brother Matthew uh, being Brother Matthew, um, people were uh, using their skills to um, to to de-escalate the situation, to calm the calm out, calm down individuals, to make sure that that whatever hostility they have would be abated through just verbal verbal communication. Talk about that in a little more detail, because I don't know who. I mean, I was at the Chaz briefly, but I don't know who Brother Matthew was or like what incident you're talking about. So I'm kind of uh, curious. Brother about Matthew is a guy who uh, shows up up here uh all around the seattle area and also i think he's even set up in portland as well um preacher guy gets in everybody's faces usually not liked by everybody super afraid of snakes uh thanks jerry um but uh yeah he like like he he's he's a person who thrives off of confrontation and uses uh, the bible as as his uh mode of of operation but um i remember distinctly at uh, at the chop, um, he was getting it, in, getting into it with people, but everybody who was around t tried to talk him down. They tried to chill, make him chill out, even though he was continually screaming for attention and just being weird. But, um, uh, but in the end, um, like, uh, that's just like, that happens more often with, uh, protest, uh, situations or March situations or, uh, direct action situations where we're asked to be a part of it by the organizers and and as um ray had mentioned and nova had mentioned um we like we're asked to be there and we're not just asked and then we suddenly show up like we get involved with the people who are organizing any of the partners that they that they um uh that they uh, get a that they bring into it we try to learn as much about what's going on with them, uh, who are the threats, 
where where the event is, how the event is um, going to be thought of. We ask a lot of questions about it. Like we plan and plan and plan and plan to make sure that everything is super safe or as safe as possible based on all known variables. And uh, and then the stuff that's unknown, we do our best to mitigate that somehow. Yes, we are armed, but that's like the last thing that we ever even think of. And that's even in our planning. Like we say flat out, de-escalate first. Um, if things start to ratchet up, respond in kind. So like if someone, you know, like tries to like, I don't know, like starts to fist fight, we're not going to pull out a gun on someone who wants to box somebody on the street. We're going to do our best to stop. So uh, stop them um, through other means, like uh, whether if it's just to block a punch or whatever. But the first things and foremost is de-escalation. Calm, calm that person down and tell them to go away or just to chill out or whatever the whatever is necessary. I mean, de-escalation, all of the best community self-defense that I've personally watched has been de-escalation. Um, you know, they're, they're not the only situations I've seen. I've seen force used a couple of times in situations that were necessary, but by far de-escalation is the thing I've seen um, actually protect people in dicey situations the most. Um, and generally that's, that's going to be the case. Yeah, um, I know for myself, uh, like my attitude is, we all go home. Everybody who shows up there goes home. Not to the hospital, not to jail, ever, or not to the morgue. We all go home. Yeah, I think that's definitely seems like the best way to look at it. So into the specific question of uh, how not to become a cop in this position and become the gun. The only way I've been able to do anything in that regard has been to not have that be my primary thing that I fulfill. I'm part of a community and I'm a mechanical person in this community. I try to have my mission be not that other skill set or that other access to being of an aid to a community be my actual purpose in the community, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and yeah, I think is the healthiest way to to deal with it so something i've been wondering about as so i'm like not armed at all so i guess i'm on like the other the other side of the fence of the sort of community self-defense thing when people show up to protests um and so something i was wondering about is is the relationship between this stuff and you know between the sort of cop mentality development and the difficulty of sort of integrating to the community of having organizations that are basically independent security groups and not, for example, like taking like, I don't know, take like an historical example. Like there was a thing in China you'd see a lot in, in like the 1900s where, you know, you'd have armed pickets, right? And so you, you, you have an armed force there, but the armed force is like, you know, this is, this is like a branch of the union, right? And that's, that's how they sort of like, like that, that was their sort of solution to how do you stop cop syndrome is that, you know, they're 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 basically like a a part of another community organization, and so I'm 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 curious what y'all think about what the sort of I guess the, the strengths and weaknesses of of being an independent or ha having having sort of independent security organizations versus 
having, I guess, subsections of other organizations that are armed? Yeah, I feel like I can offer a unique perspective here as someone who's been privy to multiple angles of this, including separate organizations, ones integrated with others, and ones that are sort of just parts of the community. I don't think there's any like inherent sort of best answer here. I do think being part of a, a separate organization makes it harder to be in the community versus of the community, meaning you came from the community and now you're sort of kind of separate, but not really. Um, like JB in particular has a perpetual problem with people saying, oh, you know, uh, John Brown will do X. And, and this is something that has been discussed. And often this is to people's immense ire. I don't want to speak for everyone here, but it does seem to be that so seldom does one wish to be said, oh, hello. It's kind of like saying, oh, the union will solve this. And it's like, turns out you're the union, buddy. <laughs> um, right? And never refer to the union in the first person. So I do think being embedded into other groups or being sort of this loose, diffuse group can make it easier to be part of the community because of the structural forces that make that um, it is easier to get there. A separate organization can help focus and codify certain procedures, uh, training, you know, make sure that people have some sort of unified goals and values at the expense of making it a bit harder to integrate into one's community. I think given the era we're in, uh, I'm not surprised we see many, many approaches to community defense with varying effectiveness at different times, including JB's perspective. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I'm interested as we uh, as we move on here. And like one of the one of the questions I see is, how do you the difficulty in kind of you don't want to have a situation where there's absolutely no where the community self defense contingent is anyone who shows up with a gun because then anyone can show up with a gun and you as someone else who's showing up with a weapon or potentially like if that person uh makes a bad decision that's going to i mean as it as it has in the past that has significant repercussions on everybody else and i i that is one of the thornier points cuz i i do one of the things i see is valuable someone mentioned earlier like the nice thing about it just it not being firearms being normalized not as a like gun culture thing but as a this is just a thing that is present in the community. And I saw that a lot in Rojava, right? Everybody was armed, um, or at least a significant chunk of the populace had access to arms, but nobody was showing off with them. They were not like anybody's like piece of identity. They were just one of the tools, like a, like a, like a spade or a shovel that were present in the community. Um, okay, I think I've skipped over a couple of people. I wanted to uh, give uh, Thud a chance to talk. Um, that's actually very much sort of in line with what the point I was going to make, which is for me, a huge part of community defense is making sure that the aspect that is defending the community is not alienated from the community because it isn't concentrated in just a few people. Because I think one of the other things that we emphasize a lot sort of outside of direct protest actions is we try to teach people how to safely operate firearms, but also to give firearms the respect that they deserve, that firearms are not there so that you are badass. Firearms are not there because, you know, you're going to get into a gunfight and it's cool. the first rule. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we stress sort of beyond the basic 
four rules of gun safety is the first rule of gunpipe is don't get into a gunpipe mm-hmm. that it's you know you want to exhaust every possible option that you have and when the community at large is engaged and like Ray was saying that it's sort of it becomes normalized that oh we're not relying on these several people to keep us safe but that in fact as an entire collective we are keeping us safe and that gives recognition to the fact that some people it's not it's not the right choice for them to carry a gun for one reason or another and the at the same time the the power that is present in that particular tool is dispersed to the point where it doesn't you know you don't have people getting self-aggrandizing thoughts because of the fact that they're possessing firearms and i think that's something that we you know, work really hard to instill in people in a variety of contexts, and I think is really critical to this question. So, the question that I'm just trying to summarize um, what the question was earlier: what the strengths or weaknesses of having an organized armed response are. Um, one of the things that that <clears throat> I wanted to bring up is the historical context of of armed response, specifically community armed response in Seattle. Um, I did some digging and found in a uh, a book called History of Seattle from the Earliest Settlement to the Present Time, Volume 2, which I started pouring through and found that there was, uh, in 1874, there was a group called the Seattle Amateur Rifle Association, which leased land for a range on current present-day Capitol Hill, um, like right where the the train station is, if you're familiar with the area. So like... Mm -hmm. Right where protests always happen these days. Yeah. Later on, there's record record in 1877 of the Seattle rifle team uh, organizing a shooting contest. And then later on in 1886, which is a number that probably rings a bell, the Chinese riots, as they called them at the time, uh, happened, which was sort of the start of the labor movement where everyone decided that Chinese immigrants were the cause of all of our, our woes, that the low wages being paid to Chinese immigrants were because of Chinese immigrants and not racism. So they decided to run every person who looked Chinese out of town, literally. Uh, they referred to this as the Tacoma method. And- I'm guessing because that's what they did in Tacoma. Exactly, it started there. And uh, it was a February 7th of 1886. This massive, angry, racist mob tried to push all of the, the Chinese folks out of Seattle or anyone they thought might look like Chinese. and they tried to push them onto a steamboat, but there weren't there wasn't enough room for them all there. Um, cops got involved, a bunch of other stuff happened. They decided, no, give them time in court. But uh, in the process of, of making this decision, you know, the racists got a mob together and were basically just gonna try and put a stop to this before they, the, the legal proceedings could to go forward. So they reached out to local allies in arms. They had the home guards, which I'm not exactly sure exactly what the home guards were, but I I assume there's something related to National Guard later on, or maybe just an extension of military. But the uh, home guards and the Seattle Rifles, as well as the university cadets, which I'm assuming are, of course, soldiers in training, and uh, pulled them all out 
and made a community self-defense group out of them. They put a rifle line and held the mob back and enabled those folks to get, you know, safely to have their day in court. Um, and then to protect them for a while afterward, they actually organized uh, a uh, sort of a, a watch because they didn't have enough police to, to manage the mob. They used folks from the, the Seattle Rifles and these other groups to, uh, to sort of bolster the police forces and keep peace in the town. So the, the sort of thing that we do is long standing historical presence, but I think there's a lot of things you can look at the, the history of and sort of take lessons from. So um, as, as Ray mentioned, a unified response is of course a huge benefit of having uh, a huge strength of having an organized armed group. Uh, and it's, it's literally, if someone reaches out and says, we need help, help is available. Um, but there are a lot of weaknesses. Uh, businesses and clubs can be held liable legally. And this is an endemic problem within gun laws. It stands. The laws are written such that they effectively, they're, they, it comes down to situational context to determine how a gun law should be enforced. And the law will never be on the side of a group trying to abolish parts of the law. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very careful about how you, how especially an organized or formally organized uh, armed group has to be very careful about how they put their, their work in play with that in mind. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I was unaware, actually. I was aware of the, of the riots. I was unaware of that part of the history, which is... Uh fascinating um and i think very important yeah ray did you want to uh explain the threat onion yeah the integrated threat onion so this is kind of a a well-known meme in certain circles uh slash actual thing and it's designed to help you understand how to like mitigate threat and or sorry integrated survivability onion mitigate threats right so the teal deer is you know, do you want to try to pre- preserve life by having body armor and hoping a bullet hits you in the body armor? Or do you want to preserve life by, I don't know, not showing the fuck up to something where you might get shot? Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is it's, it's a meme because so often, you know, people are like, oh, I want to get in there and get, in, get engaged with conflict and be the hero. And the answer is, you know, you could just like not go there, right? And it would probably be a lot easier to do that. But it, there's some real weight to the survivability onion, which is... Like there are many, many ways to mitigate threats to yourself and your community. And very often the most boring and mundane answer is probably the one that's going to actually result in the biggest impact. And the heroic answer is probably the absolute worst answer and only what you rely on if everything else has gone to hell. So that's uh, someone, I think it was Thud spoke to, alluded to the threat onion and ways to mitigate harm to oneself and one's community. And I had to repeat it because it's this this meme that's been coming up forever. Yeah, and it is like th- the basic idea of the Thread Onion is that you have like this, again, you, you, it, it, you think of it in layers, that's why they call it an onion, um, of like things that protect you. And the things that provide the most protection are stuff like not being seen or present when somebody wants to harm you. Um, not or being behind cover when somebody wants to harm you. And the thing that offers the least protection is having body armor, you know? It's this the idea that, like, um, the things that people buy and, and focus on because they look cool um, are all things that offer less protection than situational awareness and good judgment. 
um, is kind of the actual like lesson I think to take out of the threat onion. That would be my opinion on the matter. This has been It Could Happen Here. That's all for this week. Find us at Happen Here Pod on Instagram and Twitter and find the rest of our shows at Coolzone Media in the same places. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.